Hi everyone, and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens. Tonight, in the somewhat delayed 46th episode of our ongoing exploration of Tolkien's Middle-earth, we begin Book 4 of The Lord of the Rings, the second half of The Two Towers. We begin, functionally, the second half of this magnificent novel, and we do so by pivoting away from Aragorn, and from Gimli, and from Legolas, and from Merry, and from Pippin, and from Treebeard, and from Gandalf to Frodo and to Sam. We catch up with Frodo and Sam after the breaking of the Fellowship. It has been a little while since we visited with our ring bearer and his faithful servant venturing forth into the wilds of Mordor or as we'll see in this week's reading, traveling through the jagged and treacherous Emin Mool. It is great to have you all here. Angela's calling out. It's ninny hammer time. I think I pulled a slide in which Sam uses the word ninny hammer, which I'm, I'm looking forward to discussing a great deal. Perhaps I didn't. If nothing else, then, then we can take a moment now to comment on, on Sam's lovely, lovely use of language throughout this chapter. We do, of course, adore Sam. It is going to be a really interesting discussion this evening. It is great to have you all here. Brian confirms peanut butter ninny time, which I think is maybe an excellent alternate title for tonight's session. It is good to have everyone here. Shane and Angela and Jenna and Becca and Nikki and Raj, I saw earlier, is joining us for the first time. It's good to have you with us, Raj. <laughs> Jenna is calling out in the chat. Potatoes, because, you know, Sam, Sam, and we need potatoes. That's that's all we need. Yes, Jenna says, I know that's the movie, but who cares? Yeah, well, you know what? The movie does put some foot, some foot, some feet wrong when it comes to the adaptation of The Lord of the Rings. Certainly there will be some points that we will discuss and some points that we might even criticize when it comes to our discussion of Peter Jackson's uh, adaptation of The Lord of the Rings. But Sam is pretty much a knockout win. Sam is pretty much a success from start to finish. So I'm very much looking forward to discussing that adaptation and discussing Sam in particular. Let's get right to it because we've got a lot of ground to cover in book four, chapter one, The Taming of Smeagol. Um, I'm going to be inconsistent, you guys. If you've been following there and back again uh, thus far, then you will know that Smeagol, because of the accent on the E, which you can see here on the title slide of tonight's session, the accent on the E tells us that that is supposed to be a double vowel sound. It is not supposed to be united into a single vowel sound, but Smeagol feels weird. It feels ungainly. It feels, I think, less less elegant and less direct. So generally speaking, it is contracted to Smeagol. Generally speaking, we don't hear that that properly pronounced uh, that properly pronounced version of the name. And actually, I find as I'm carefully reading this book and carefully preparing these live sessions, uh, I find that I am slipping more toward Smeagol rather than Smeagol. So I'm probably going to use the two interchangeably. I hope that you will forgive me for any uh, any pronunciative uh, inconsistency as we move through this reading. And hey, the rest of the two towers, I suppose. We're going to spend quite a lot of time with this this wonderful and complex and gorgeous character. More on Gollum slash Smeagol later. We must begin, though, by taking a quick look at the timeline. Here we go. So as I said, we're going to cut back from the end of book three back to a short period after the breaking of the Fellowship. This is the rough chronology of events in book three of The Two Towers. On February the 26th in the year 1319 of the Third Age, we see the Fellowship break. That is Frodo's decision to leave the Fellowship and to go on alone. Also, of course, concomitantly, the, the, the fall of Boromir, his great victory over the influence of the ring. 
and his much less effective battle against the orcs at Parth Gallon. So that is the breaking of the Fellowship on February the 26th. On February the 28th, Aomer and his men kill the orcs on the fringes of Fangorn Forest. On February the 29th, Merry and Pippin meet Treebeard. On February the 30th, 30 days in every month, as we discussed previously in uh, in the calendaring system that Tolkien uses throughout The Lord of the Rings, 30 days in every month and then a handful of days to make up the, the balance here in the high summer and then in the deep winter too. So on February 30th, we get the Entmoot, and we get Aomer meeting Aragorn and, and company and giving them the horses so that they can pursue their quarry still further. On March the 1st, Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas are reunited with Gandalf. On the 2nd, Gandalf cures Theoden, and the Ents set forth from the Entmoot, the march to Isengard. On March 3rd, we begin the Battle of Helm's Deep, which concludes on March 4th. On March 5th, Gandalf confronts Saruman at Orthanc. We get the shattering of the staff, we get the hurling of the Palantir, everything that we discussed in... Uh, I guess not even last week's session, but the session before that. And then on March 6th, Gandalf and Pippin leave for Minas Tirith. But we pick up with Frodo and Sam three days after the breaking of the Fellowship. Actually, technically three days after their uh, their uh, decision to depart. So this is February the 28th. And the entirety of this chapter will take us through to the end of February the 30th. So we are still a long way from catching up with the narrative right now. Events are unfolding far to the west, far across the plains of Rohan, far across the Great River Anduin. Events are unfolding. Uh, things are continuing to happen over there. Frodo and Sam know nothing of those events as we move forward. Um, let me see here. Fina's, Fina is saying, um, oh, we're, we're tracking back to the, uh, we're tracking back to the, uh, the discussion about the pronunciation here. Yes. Yes. Um, the, uh, pronunciation, the diphthong pronunciation here. Um, yes, it, it's just, it's wildly inconsistent. That's, that's the problem is that, English, unlike Tolkien's, uh, Tolkien's constructed languages, is just wildly inconsistent when it comes in particular to our treatment of vowels in general, never mind the pronunciation of diphthongs, the, the selective and, uh, and inconsistent pronunciation of diphthongs or, or, or uh, collapse into diphthongs. Um, that is not true of Tolkien's constructed languages. As a philological nerd, Tolkien created very, very consistent languages. Sindarin is, in particular, enormously consistent. And even the other languages that we get, too, Dwarvish also very very consistent. So uh, yeah, that that's just uh, a problem of the pronunciation, the adaptation here into English. Yes, um, good good. All right, let's get into the. Um... <laughs> Joseph says when I first logged on, I totally looked at this slide and thought it was Alistair laying out his 2018 schedule. No, I could definitely have done this right. We'll just do a there and back again session every day on March 1st. We'll talk about the reunification of Aragorn and company with Gandalf. Then on the second, we'll just talk about Gandalf curing Theoden. That is the rest of my life right there. That is just. Wow, that's that's an epic undertaking, but uh, an undertaking which I am only too glad to pick up, let me tell you. So that puts us in our temporal frame here, where we're moving back in time nine days to pick up with Frodo and Sam shortly after the breaking of the Fellowship. So while Merry and Pippin are still in the clutches of the orcs, I guess, are just about to escape from the orcs after Eomer and the Rohirrim fall upon them, as Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas are just running, just running across the plains of Rohan, that's where we are right now. Let's get to it. Let's talk about Frodo and Sam in the Emin Mool. What a fix, said Sam. That's the one place in all the lands we've ever heard of and we don't want to see any closer and that's the one place we're trying to get to. And that's just where we can't get know-how. We've come the wrong way altogether, seemingly. We can't get down and if we did get down, we find all this, th that green land a nasty bog, I'll warrant. Phew, can you smell it? He sniffed at the wind. 
Yes, I can smell it, said Frodo, but he did not move, and his eyes remained fixed, staring out toward the dark line and the flickering flame. Mordor, he muttered under his breath. If I must go there, I wish it would come quickly and make an end. He shuddered. The wind was chilly and yet heavy with an odor of cold decay. Well, he said at last, withdrawing his eyes, we cannot stay here all night, fix or no fix. We must find a more sheltered spot and camp once more, and perhaps another day will show us a path. Or another, and another, and another, muttered Sam. Or maybe no day. We've come the wrong way. I wonder, said Frodo. It's my doom, I think, to go to that shadow yonder, so that a way will be found. But will good or evil show it to me? What hope we had was in speed. Delay plays into the enemy's hands, and here I am, delayed. Is it the will of the dark tower that steers us? All my choices have proved ill. I should have left the company long before and come down from the north, east of the river and from Emin Mool, and so over the heart of the battle plain to the passes of Mordor. But now it isn't possible for you and me alone to find a way back, and the orcs are prowling on the east bank. Every day that passes is a precious day lost. I am tired, Sam. I don't know what is to be done. What food have we got left? Only those, what do you call them, Lambus, Master Frodo, a fair supply, but they're better than not by a long bite. I never thought, though, when I first set tooth on them, that I, that I should ever come to wish for a change, but I do now. A bit of plain bread and a mug, aye, half a mug of beer would go down proper. I've lugged my cooking gear all the way from the last camp, and what use has it been? Not to make a fire with for a start, and not to cook, not even grass. And so we catch up with Frodo and Sam already in desperate measures, already here stranded far from hope, and yet, and yet... There are forces working upon Frodo's journey that may not be entirely destructive, that may not be entirely harmful. So first, a bit of framing. We are here in the Emin Mool, the Sindarin name meaning the drear hills. The word Emin here, by the way, is the plural form of the word Ammon. You'll remember the word Ammon from, from Ammon Hen, you know, the, the, the hill of, of seeing here. The Emin there is the plural, and uh, Mool simply meaning drear or dreary. This is just a bleak place. It is a bleak place, and they're looking ahead to Mordor, but also smelling that stench of decay from the marshes, which we'll venture into in next week's reading, in fact. What's really significant about this passage, though, is Frodo's moment of self-awareness, his moment of, of monologue, I suppose, as he wonders which forces are governing his journey here, which forces are, are guiding his steps. I wonder, said Frodo, it's my doom, I think, to go to the shadow yonder so that a way will be found. Okay, it is my fate. It is the judgment that has been placed upon me that I will go to the shadow. I believe that this is going to happen. A way will be found. Something will present itself. Something will open up to us. But will good or evil show it to me? Not, Sam, you and I, we're plucky, we're resourceful, we're hobbits, we know what we're doing, we can definitely make this happen. No, Frodo has already cast that hope aside. He has already given up any hope that there was of he and Sam forging a path, finding a path to Mordor. Now he acknowledges that he is in the hands of greater forces. Something is going to happen to reveal a path. Sam, I believe that that is going to happen. I believe that it is my doom to go to the shadow. But will it be a good force that reveals the path? Will it be a path of hope and of grace? Or will it be a dark force? Will the shadow fall upon us and have us captured and dragged to Barad-dûr? Will we be taken to the, to the cracks of doom, not by our own will, not by our own desire to prevent utter devastation from falling across Middle-earth, but by something darker, something more malevolent here? 
What hope we had, Frodo says, was in speed. Delay plays into the enemy's hands, and here I am delayed. Is it the will of the dark tower that steers us? Well, no. It turns out, actually, no. Speed, Frodo, would not have availed you. And you acknowledge that by saying that there are orcs all over the eastern bank. There are orcs all through the Ammon Mool. There are orcs all across the Brownlands. There are orcs everywhere. If you had left the company earlier and crossed the river and come down through the Brownlands, you would have been captured immediately. Because there is nowhere that you could have... have have hidden from the forces of orcs. And we know that this is true because the orcs, of course, have been crossing the river because we know that there are, are dark forces on the eastern side of the Anduin at this point. But we're about to see more proof that the orcs are moving in force through the Brownlands. That's actually not a true statement, Frodo. Your hope was never in speed. It was in stealth. And so the failure of your hope, the failure of your desire to cross the Brownlands, and instead the fact that you are trapped here in this, this, this chaotic, riotous landscape of the Emin Mool, this, this sharp-edged and dangerous landscape, this is actually perfect. This is actually about as much as you could have hoped for because you are at least hidden. You are at least sequestered away. Is it the will of the Dark Tower that steers us? Well, pretty emphatically, no, at this point. I think the text guides us to believe that that is not the case. But Frodo is having a different conversation, and it's a very familiar conversation to us because we've come through book three. We remember Aragorn having a, a very similar moment of, of concern, a moment of self-doubt, if you will. All my choices have proved ill. Aragorn expressed a very similar thought back at Parthgallon, if you recall. And in fact, in a major way, that was... That was part of the, the thematic backdrop to the entirety of book three. What are the choices that we make? Under whose influence do we make those choices? And what do those choices ultimately mean? This is the first time, I think, that the Lord of the Rings is really actively wrestling with this notion of eucatastrophe, with this notion of, of intercessory grace, with this divine wind that blows from the West and carries with it good fortune, that, that things are going to happen that will seem terrible, but in the end, they will turn to good effect. And this extends, as we've discussed before, all the way back to the, the very early chapters of The Hobbit, most notably, I suppose, when we arrive at Rivendell in The Hobbit. And if we hadn't been waylaid by trolls, and if we hadn't, you know, had all of these unfortunate adventures on the road to Rivendell, we would simply have arrived at Rivendell too early. Elrond would not have been able to read the moon runes on Thror's map and, and guide the party to the successful conclusion of their quest. So when things happen which seem to, seem to slow our progress or even threaten our progress entirely, oftentimes within the pages of Tolkien, these things generate a positive outcome. We saw, you know, the Battle of Helm's Deep. And, and had we fought at Isengard, uh, we fought rather at the Fords of Isen, it would have gone terribly badly. That would have been a, a horrifying assault by the, the Urukai marching from Isengard. But if the Urukai hadn't marched from Isengard to engage with the Rohirrim at Helm's Deep then maybe the Ents wouldn't have been successful in tearing down Isengard. In the end, everything seems to work out. It could have been different, but it couldn't have been better. So what does that 
mean? What does that tell us about Frodo's state of mind? What did it tell us about Aragorn's state of mind? Why is he questioning his choices when he firmly believes that a force, an external force, not Frodo and Sam alone in the world, but, but some greater force is going to reveal a path, is going to guide his steps, is going to get him all the way to the shadow, even if that means ultimate failure, even if that means ultimate despair and the ruination of all, something is going to open a path for him. And yet he's still taking responsibility for the choice. All my choices have proved ill. I should have left the company long ago and come down from the north, east of the river and of the Emin Mool, and so over the heart of the battle plain to the passes of Mordor. I mean, no, no, you shouldn't have done that. You should already realize, Frodo, that that would have been futile. We, from our less directly engaged perspective, can certainly realize that that would have been futile, that that would have been horribly, horribly destructive. But still, Frodo takes responsibility. And this is... The part of eucatastrophe, I suppose, which we don't often discuss. But it is an idea that we've discussed on many occasions here in There and Back Again. We've discussed this very idea in the context of Bilbo's luck, particularly Bilbo's luck, but obviously also the luck of the hobbits. It isn't enough to have grace intercede on your behalf. It isn't enough to have the eagles fly over and rescue you from the top of pine trees as goblins and wargs hurl burning pine cones up at you and set fire to the very trees in which you find yourselves. It isn't enough to simply be buoyed along by the whims of fate, even if that fate is good. In order for you catastrophe to find purchase, in order for there to be a space for grace in the world, we ourselves have to take action. We ourselves have to make the best decisions that we can with the available information. We have to, to put it very simply and very bluntly, we have to try. We don't give up. We continue the fight in the hope. And it's clearly not here it is clearly not here the case that Frodo has completely given up, right? He's still asking the question. It is my doom, I think, to go to the shower yonder so that a way will be found, but will good or evil show it to me? He's asking the question, will good or evil? Is it the will of the dark tower that steers us? Well, maybe, maybe, and maybe he's leaning toward that in this particular instance. But it's not just the will of the dark tower. We are not, even in Frodo's, uh, you know, uh, daunted and somewhat overshadowed perspective right now, we are not doomed in the modern sense of the word. We are not without hope. We are not bereft of hope. Rather, we're just taking action. We're just fighting the fight. We're taking the step that we can take, and we're going to continue to do that. And maybe, maybe, catastrophe will find a way to intercede. Maybe we will have earned that intercessory grace. More on that, of course, later. We'll also note that we have the Lambus and that Sam is very pleased to have it. They're better than not by a long bite. I never thought, though, when I first set tooth in them that I would ever come to wish for a change, but I do now. Elven magic is great, you guys. Elven trail rations are wonderful, but it's still kind of like hardtack. And it's still, whether it's hardtack or not, still the same every day. Sam is now wishing for something not just not just something different, right? He's not just wanting something different. Look at what he's actually calling out. I do now. A bit of plain bread and a mug. I half a mug of beer would go down proper. I've lugged my cooking gear all the way from the last camp and what use has it been? Not to make a fire with for a start and not to cook, not even grass. 
Sam isn't just wanting a change. He's not just restless because of this this uh, Lembus-based diet upon which he finds himself. Probably not paleo, you guys. Probably not like you know, probably not really nutritionally sound uh, in a long term uh, or from a long term perspective. But nonetheless, he's not just wishing for a change. He isn't just restless. What he wants is the comfort of home. A bit of plain bread and a half a mug of beer would, would just hit the spot right now. This is exactly the same as Bilbo wishing for tea and bacon, thinking of his kettle merrily whistling back home in his kitchen at Bag End all through the latter half of his journey to the, the Lonely Mountain. This is exactly that same hobbitish impulse. And as we observed when we were talking about Bilbo back in the pages of The Hobbit, this isn't just a dissatisfaction. It isn't just a discontentment, and it certainly isn't desperation. You know, no one is on the verge of giving up. Had I but a piece of plain bread and a half a mug of ale, I could keep going, but I'm sorry, Master Frodo, this is where I draw the line. Lembus again, thank you, but no thank you. I'm just going to lay down in the shadow of this rock and die. That's not where Sam is. He's wishing for the comfort of home, but in a sense, wishing for the comfort of home is drawing a connection. It's drawing a thread. It's reminding Sam that he is still of the Shire. He is still a creature fundamentally, I think, of comfort, yes, and ease, yes, and civility, yes, but also of hope. There's still, well, <laughs> I guess we'll get there in a few chapters' time, but there is still good in the world, Master Frodo. We may not have bread, and we may not have a half a mug of ale, but those things still exist. They're still out there. Just as when Bilbo was wishing for his his singing kettle, his whistling kettle, and that 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 uh, the the crispy bacon from the skillet. You know, just as he's wishing for those things, he's not simply observing the absence of those things in his life right now. He is remembering the kind of tokenistic existence of those things. Those things still exist. And you know what? Bacon will get you through the darkest night. Bacon will get you through a lot. You guys. This is what hobbits do. They reaffirm the memories of comfort and seem to, in some sense, draw strength from that reaffirmation. Yeah. Let me see. Um, <laughs> Ty says that he can imagine elves with neat caps, uh, neat caps on delivering pizzas on horseback. Yeah, um, there's probably a, a Domino's pun that I'm not quite... Not quite sharp enough this evening to get to, but there's probably like a, like a Domino's pun that we can get to with, with elves. I'm, I'm sure one of you will be smart enough to work that out here in the Crowdcast chat. Yes. Um, good. Yeah. And Nikki says, this is especially evident by Sam continuing to carry his pots and pans far into Mordor. It is comfort and hope. Yes, absolutely. And Ty is calling out, I don't reckon Samwise Gamgee ever reaches the point of defeat. That's the thing. In many ways, we're, we're going to be talking a lot over the course of the next better part of a year, I suppose, as we wrap up this book, uh, but particularly in the context of book four of The Two Towers, we're going to be talking a lot about Sam Gamgee, and we're going to be talking a lot about the greatness of Sam's character, and also, in some senses, the the smallness of Sam's character. There are going to be some problematic elements to Sam's character, particularly with regard to his relationship with Gollum. More on that at the end of tonight's reading, and certainly much more on that next week. But the thing that distinguishes Sam, we must always remember, is not exceptionalism. Sam is not a special hobbit. Quite the contrary. Sam's power and heroism and, and grace here, Sam's strength here, come from the fact that he is a completely normal hobbit. He is not burdened by an excess of greatness. 
he is simply what hobbitishness is at its purest, at its best. So Sam the individual is a wonderful character, of course, but here he is absolutely emblematic of what is good about the Shire. And as he continues on, we mustn't allow ourselves to forget. We mustn't allow ourselves to fall into the trap of thinking, but Sam, though, I mean, if any other hobbit had been here, things wouldn't have turned out so well. That may actually be true, I suppose. Let me refine that thought. Sam is not exceptional in the sense that he is less hobbity than any of the other hobbits. He is exceptional in the sense that he is more hobbity than any of the other hobbits. Sam is the, 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 the uber hobbit, I suppose. He is as good a hobbit as it is possible to be, and that is where we get our, our strength here. Um, yeah, exactly. Jackie says Sam's uh, Sam's cooking also seems like his creative outlet. Uh, seems like his creative outlet. That and gardening, he must be bored in taste bud and imagination. Yes, I think that's entirely true. And also, of course, lest we forget his provision for his master. Right? He's he is here in part to serve Frodo, to to ease Frodo's burdens upon this journey, and carrying with him his his cooking gear is a way of demonstrating that cooking for Frodo would be a very a very special and very important and, and borderline sacred thing for Sam, right? That is the, the fulfillment of his duty. And as we've observed, Sam's duty is pretty much indistinguishable, certainly inextricable from his nature, right? To cook and provide for Frodo is a very Sam thing to do. And he now can't do that. He now can't provide for Frodo in that way. And that's very important too, because we're going to see the many services that Sam provides for Frodo, we have already seen, in fact, the many services that Sam provides for Frodo kind of fall away. As we move into greater and greater adversity, Sam's functionality as a servant, his functionality as, as a, I suppose, a domestic companion for his master becomes less and less important. But, or, or mm, let me, again, refine that thought. Sam's function here does not become less and less important. It becomes, if anything, more and more important. But it is distilled. He is now no longer, you know, polishing Frodo's brass buttons. He is now no longer folding Frodo's bedroll and packing it away. Frodo's taking responsibility for his own baggage at this point, though we can be sure that Sam is still carrying far more than his fair share. He can't cook for Frodo now because he just doesn't have the means to do it. So all he can do is surrender up the Lembus that they were given back in Lothlorien, which is... I'm sure, somewhat less satisfying, both personally and in terms of his relationship with uh, his relationship with his master Frodo, yes. Um, Jenna says, he remains the hobbit and never rises above it, not in a bad way, but just in a true way. Absolutely, that's beautifully put, right? Because, of course, Sam has no desire to rise above it. Sam has no internal conflict. Sam is, huh, interesting. Sam is as integrated a personality as we see in the entirety of The Lord of the Rings. Is that true? Yeah, I think that, that might actually be a true statement. I certainly can't think of anyone else who is as completely themselves, right? Uh, completely present, completely true, as, as I say, completely integrated. The elves, certainly not. To, to be an elf is to be disintegrated, you know, to, to be an elf is to be riven with conflict. Here you are in Middle-earth, you're tarrying in Middle-earth, but there is that part of you that yearns, there is that part of you that longs for the sea and for the wide land beyond the sea to, to travel into the West and to return to Valinor, you know. This is a very important part of what it is to be an elf. To be a dwarf, are dwarves integrated in that same way? I don't think that they are because dwarves aspire, dwarves want to build and to create and to to fashion and to fathom things which 
improve the world? They want to add to the sum total of dwarven greatness in a way that certainly most hobbits don't appear to. Men, too, strive in a very similar fashion. Men, obviously caught between the, the greatness of the past and the diminishment of the future. Men, too, like the elves, although, I guess, from an alternate perspective, men, too, are caught between past and future. You know, they're caught in this, this impermanent present, and hobbits aren't. And Sam, in that sense, may be the most realized hobbit. He may be the most focused hobbit of all of them, yeah. Jenneth points out, Sam is the truest hobbit slash Hufflepuff. Sam is very, very Hufflepuff, yes, yes. Oh, and Raylan says, Sam and Ron are cut from the same cloth. That's interesting, isn't it? I have just been thinking, as I've been reading the beginning of uh, Goblet of Fire again for our Dear Mr. Potter discussions, which take place every Tuesday night over at pointnorthmedia.com, um... I have just been thinking about the connections between the Weasleys and hobbitry in all its forms, and particularly that that abundant avuncular domesticity that we associate with the Weasleys, that we associate with the burrow in particular, but which the Weasleys carry with them like a like a like an aura of gentleness and civility. You know, <laughs> this is exactly true. I think Ron too at this point, Ron too would be standing faithfully by Harry but also thinking about a piece of plain bread and a half a mug of ale, like a half a mug of butterbeer, I suppose, at that point. Yeah, yeah. Good, okay. Let's keep... Um, yes, <laughs> Ty is, is calling out the, the obvious connection here, yes. Oh my God, you guys, the Weasleys live in the burrow. It is basically a hobbit hole. Yes, yes. Uh, not filled with a with a dank odor and the, the an oozy smell and the ends of worms, right? That is not the burrow. It is a Weasley home and that means comfort. Yes, very good. Hobbits are Hufflepuffs, says Jenna. Elves are... Are Ravenclaw, dwarves are Slytherin, men are Gryffindor. Oh boy. Um, hmm. I am not sure that I can go with you there. I am not sure that I can follow you on that journey. Hobbits and elves as Hufflepuff and Ravenclaw, I can completely see. I think there is as much of the Slytherin about the men of Middle-earth, certainly the men of, of Numenor, you know, or Farazon's assault upon Val uh, Valinor is, is proof that men are possessed of enormous jealousy. But at their best, yes, yes. I think that's, uh, that's an, interesting, uh, an interesting bit of textual reading. Yes, good. Okay, let's keep moving on then. So that is our discussion of uh, our first, that's actually our first slide from, from this week's reading. Three days after the breaking, Sam and Frodo in Emin Mool. Let's move on to a short discussion about Gollum. They turned away and went down into a stony hollow. The westering sun was caught into clouds and night came swiftly. They slept as well as they could for the cold, turn and turn about in a nook among great jagged pinnacles of weathered rock. At least they were sheltered from the easterly wind. Did you see them again, Mr. Frodo, said Sam, as they sat, stiff and chilled, munching wafers of lembus in the cold grey of early morning. No, said Frodo. I've heard nothing and seen nothing for two nights now. Nor me, said Sam. Girl, those eyes did give me a turn. But perhaps we've shaken him off at last, the miserable slinker. Gollum. I'll give him Gollum in his throat if I ever get my hands on his neck. I hope you'll never need to, said Frodo. I don't know how he followed us, but it may be he's lost us again, as you say. In this dry, bleak land, we can't leave many footprints, nor much scent, even for his snuffling nose. I hope that's the way of it, said Sam. I wish we could be rid of him for good. So do I, said Frodo. But he's not my chief trouble. I wish we could get away from these hills. I hate them. I feel all naked on the east side, stuck up here with nothing but the dead flats between me and that shadow yonder. There's an eye in it. Come on, we've got to get down today somehow. So this is just a very brief pickup to kind of reintroduce the idea of Gollum, who has been tracing them now 
pretty much since leaving, leaving Rivendell, I guess. We know that Gollum has pursued them through the mines of Moria. We know that Gollum pursued them down through Dimrald Dale, kind of circumvented Lothlorien, picked them up on the Anduin, followed them then, and now presumably is following them still, even though Emmenmul is a bare, desolate land, which leaves very little even for Gollum's snuffling nose, as previously observed. The worst thing that you can do in the pages of The Lord of the Rings is... I mean, smell in general is pretty bad, but any kind of snuffling, sniffing kind of thing, yeah, that's that's the sign that you're a bad guy. You might be a bad guy if you go around snuffling. Yes, good. Lily says, elves are absolutely Ravenclaw. Men are, I think, mostly Slytherin with the occasional Gryffindor. That's a really good point, Lily. I think that the diminution of man, right, is the passage from Gryffindor to Slytherin. Like, men at their greatest, like the actual heights of Numenor, all of the men were Gryffindor. All of the men were courageous and bold and, and, and strong-willed. And yes, the decline of man into something less... True. I'm, I'm struck in particular there by the connection between the Slytherin kids, the, the, the Slytherin population, House Slytherin in general, and disloyalty, right? That kind of failure to recognize the true social order, like one's true kinship with one's fellows, that seems to be particularly pronounced as we observe the decline of man. Yeah, yeah, good. Good, okay. Uh, let's get, uh, Joseph is calling out, though. Pretty sure a strict textual reading of Harry Potter will show that men can be Ravenclaw, Hufflepuff, Gryffindor, or Slytherin. True, we don't get a lot of, of elves, dwarves, and, and almost no hobbits to speak of, though we will, on the pages of Goblet of Fire, have an opportunity to talk about the house elves and how they tie into, uh, how they tie into fairy tale storytelling in general, and also uh, J.K. Rowling's uh, secondary creation. Let's keep pushing onward here as we climb down and uh, and experience the sudden storm and the cry of the Nazgul. The hurrying darkness, now gathering great speed, rushed up from the east and swallowed the sky. There was a dry, splitting crack of thunder right overhead. Searing lightning smoked down into the hills. Then came a blast of savage wind, and with it, mingling with its roar, there came a high, shrill shriek. The hobbits had heard just such a cry far away in the marish as they fled from Hobbiton, and even there in the woods of the Shire it had frozen their blood. Out here in the waste... Its terror was far greater. It pierced them with cold blades of horror and despair, stopping heart and breath. Sam fell flat on his face. Involuntarily, Frodo loosed his hold and put his hands over his head and ears. He swayed, slipped, and slithered downwards with a wailing cry. Sam heard him and crawled with an effort to the edge. Master! Master! He called. Master! He heard no answer. He found he was shaking all over, but he gathered his breath, and once again he shouted, Master! The wind seemed to blow his voice back into his throat, but as it passed, roaring up the gully and away over the hills, a faint answering cry came to his ears. All right, all right, I'm here, but I can't see. Frodo was calling with a weak voice. He was not actually very far away. He had slid and not fallen and had come up with a jolt to his feet on a wider ledge not many yards lower down. Fortunately, the rock face at this point leaned well back and the wind had pressed him against the cliff so he had not toppled over. He steadied himself a little, laying his face against the cold stone, feeling his heart pounding. But either the darkness had grown complete or else his eyes had lost their sight. All was black about him. He wondered if he had been struck blind. He took a deep breath. Come back! Come back! He heard Sam's voice out of the blackness above. I can't, he said. I can't see. I can't find any hold. I can't move yet. What can I do, Master Frodo? What can I do? shouted Sam, leaning out dangerously far. Why could not his master see? It was dim, certainly, but not as dark as all that. He could see Frodo below him, a grey forlorn figure splayed against the cliff, but he was far out of the reach of any helping hand. 
<laughs> yes, a little break here as uh, as Jenna observes. Don't worry, reader. Frodo's all right. Yes, this narrative turn here as, as we're leaning out and, and we're, we're desperate in the, the very teeth of the gale as the wind is blowing the words back into Sam's throat. You know, he can't even cry out to Frodo as effectively as he wants to, but then the narrative pivots. He was not actually very far away. He had slid and not fallen and had come with a jolt to his feet in a wider ledge, not many yards lower down. Fortunately, the rock face at this point leaned well back and the wind had pressed him against the cliff so that he had not toppled over. This is a little bit, you know, Frodo does not fall down the cliff at this time, you know, I'm telling you because you were looking concerned. But also there's something really interesting here. Remember, the eastern wind is assaulting them and, and the connection with the eastern wind. If you remember the impromptu uh, lament, the, the, the eulogy that Aragorn and Legolas sing for Boromir after they have laid the cairn of stones over his body and they sing of the north wind and the south and the west and the, the tidings that come to Minas Tirith provided by these winds and Gimli Grouse says, well, you left me the east wind and I'm not going to sing of that. And Aragorn says, no, you shouldn't. The people of Minas Tirith, they don't ask the east wind for things. Are you crazy? That's the wind that blows from Mordor. That is an ill wind. But here the ill wind itself is blowing Frodo back against the wall of the cliff. The ill wind itself does not want, to whatever degree we can ascribe motivation to the wind, the wind is at least, okay, let, let's go this far and perhaps no further. The wind is helping Frodo survive this. The wind is actually beneficial to him. Now, what do we make of that? What do we make of this high, shrill cry, which the narrator is a little coy about and yet completely specific, right? We know that it is a cry of a black rider. We know that it is a cry of a Nazgul. Sam is going to kind of circle back around to that in a few minutes when he complains that he's not over it yet, even if Frodo is. He's going to clarify that this is exactly one of those black riders, except now it can fly. We Did, did we know that that was... Frodo, have you been holding out on me? Did we know that they could do that? Because I was disturbed enough by them being, you know, a bundle of rags snuffling along a forest path back in the Shire. Flying is a whole new deal, by the way. The idea of the cry of the Nazgul, A, causing Frodo to, to slip and to fall. I'm sorry, I'm getting a notification about Dropbox. Please excuse me. This is because I've moved my setup here and I haven't moved all my notifications onto the other window. Don't worry about my Dropbox, you guys. It is full right now, but, but it's all going to be fine. Um... So, <laughs> just a weird intrusion here. Um, yeah, Joseph observes, pretty sure you can prescribe motivation to anything in Tolkien. Yes, even the East Wind happening here. Um, so we get the, the, the cry of the Nazgul, and Frodo responds in a way that seems completely consistent, to, completely consistent with our response to the Nazgul in general. Involuntarily, crucially, involuntarily, Frodo loosed his hold and put his hands over his head and ears. He swayed and slipped and slithered downwards with a wailing cry. That, that, um, that alliterative sibilance there, he swayed and slipped and slithered downwards with a wailing cry. That's, of course, just beautifully done. And, and we would be remiss if we didn't just observe in general how gorgeously this is written. The hurrying darkness, now gathering great speed, rushed up from the east and swallowed the sky. There was a dry, splitting crack of thunder right overhead. Searing lightning smoke, smote down into the hills. It's, it's pretty good, you guys. Turns out that the professor can, you know, turn a phrase when he really wants to. Um, so Frodo responds to the cry. Sam falls flat on his face, completely consistent with the response to the cry of the Nazgul. Frodo lets go of the rock and covers, covers his head, covers his ears, and as a result, falls. But then something weird happens. And it isn't the east wind pinning him against the cliff face so that he doesn't fall further, if indeed that is happening. It's the blindness. 
Frodo was, uh, all right, all right, I'm here, but I can't see. Frodo was calling with a weak voice. Then we get that transition of the narrative voice. Just everything is okay. Everything, everything's not so bad. He steadied himself a little, laying his face against the cold stone, feeling his heart pounding. But either the darkness had grown complete or else his eyes had lost their sight. All was black about him. He wondered if he had been struck blind. He took a deep breath. And then we get the pivot to Sam's POV here. Why could not his master see? It was dim, certainly, but not as dark as all that. He could see Frodo below him, a great forlorn figure splayed against the cliff, that he was far out of the reach of any helping hand. Why, at this point, is Frodo blind? Why, at this point, does Frodo lose his sight? We're going to spend a fair amount of time particularly as we draw closer to Mordor, particularly as we draw closer to Mount Doom and the end of Frodo's journey, looking very closely at the ways in which Frodo is falling into shadow, falling into darkness. The, the influence of the ring over him, of course, but also the influence of the wound that he suffered back at Weathertop, the, uh, the, the fragment of Morgul blade that was left in his shoulder and then excised as we, uh, as we arrived at Rivendell. The influence of these wounds and the slipping of Frodo out of the realm of, of hobbitish existence, I suppose, right? right, Out of the mundane realm and into the magical realm, out of, of Middle-earth and into the realm of, of Morgul, into the Wraith world. This is going to be extraordinarily significant, and this, I think, is one of our first real punctuative scenes in this story. This is one of the first times that our attention is called to it, even though our attention is not called to it explicitly. The Nazgul cries, and Frodo has a very natural response, followed by a very unnatural response. His natural response? To panic, to, to cover his head, to cover his ears, and then he falls. But the unnatural response is the blindness. And of course, we have to think about sight and vision and darkness too. A lot of Tolkien's primary metaphors here crash into each other. In some senses, his primary themes crash into each other here. Frodo cannot see. He cannot see the world around him. If he was capable of looking up sufficiently, if he was capable of of peering out of this, this gully where he finds himself. He was capable of looking away from the cliff face and looking up past Sam. And if indeed the Nazgul was directly overhead, what would Frodo see? This seems to be a moment in which he is pulled hard into the Wraith world, where he is separated from his, his mundane sense. He is, he is separated from, from his, his normal, real, true, you know, anchored existence in Middle-earth. And it's easy, I think, particularly for those of us who, who like the handling of this in the films, as I do, it is very easy for us to think, oh, but he's not getting the rushy Wraith world sounds. He's not getting the, you know, he's not getting ring vision as we associate with the Peter Jackson movies, but that is not consistently how the Wraith world is represented in the pages of The Lord of the Rings. There are other representations here, and this is a very powerful one. Um, yes, as Jenna says, wasn't it suggested that the Nazgul are blind to the real world instead only seeing their own dark world, or is that just in the movies? No, that's absolutely in the books too. Yes, they are blind and can, that's hence the snuffling, right? They can't see the real world. They can only experience it dimly because their vision is arrested by the wraith world. And in the wraith world, you can see certain things. You can see, you know, the witch king of Angmar coming at you at Weathertop. You can see that this, this pale figure with the crown atop his head, you can see, um, you know, Gildor revealed in his, his luminous glory as you're, you're uh, on the road to Rivendell. There are things that you can see, but you can't see the normal world. 
and this is a very dark and and disquieting beat here for uh, for poor Frodo. Yes, good, good. All right, let's uh, keep moving onward here. Um, and and deal a little with the elven rope. I, I just basically pulled this line. It doesn't have. I mean, it has some minor connection to the story. It's going to be another kind of uh, another perspective, and and even then, not an entirely novel perspective on elven magic and elven craft. Uh, I basically pulled this because it's very good hobbitry. It's it's very good kind of of <coughs> uh, hobbit conversation. So we're going to take a look at the uh, at the elven rope here. But Sam did not answer. He was staring back up the cliff. Ninny hammers, he said. Noodles, my beautiful rope. There it is tied to a stump and we're at the bottom. Just a nice little stair for that slinking golem as we could leave. Better put up a signpost to say which way we've gone. I thought it seemed a bit too easy. If you can think of any way we could have, we could have both used the rope and yet brought it down with us, then you can pass on to me, Ninny hammer, or any other name your gaffer gave you, said Frodo. Climb up and untie it and let yourself down if you want to. Sam scratched his head. No, I can't think how, begging your pardon, he said, and I don't like leaving it, and that's a fact. He stroked the rope's end and shook it gently. It goes hard parting with anything I brought out of the elf country. Made by Galadriel herself, too, maybe. Galadriel, he murmured, nodding his head mournfully. He looked up and gave one last pull to the rope, as if in farewell. To the complete surprise of both of the hobbits, it came loose. Sam fell over as the long grey coil slithered silently down on top of him. Frodo laughed. Who tied the rope, he said. A good thing it held as long as it did, to think I trusted all my weight to your knot. Sam did not laugh. I may not be much good at climbing, Master Frodo, he said in injured tones, but I do know something about rope and about knots. It's in the family, as you might say. Why, my granddad and my Uncle Andy after him, him that was the gaffer's eldest brother, he had a rope walk over by Tyfield many a year, and I put as fast a hitch over that stump as anyone could have done, in the shire or out of it. Then the rope must have broken, frayed on the rock edge, I expect, said Frodo. I bet it didn't, said Sam in an even more injured voice. He stooped and examined the ends. Nor it hasn't neither. Not a strand. Then I'm afraid it must have been the knot, said Frodo. Sam shook his head and did not answer. He was passing the rope through his fingers thoughtfully. Have it your own way, Master Frodo, he said at last. But I think the rope came off itself when I called. He coiled it up and stowed it lovingly in his pack. It certainly came, said Frodo, and that's the chief thing. But now we've got to think of our next move. Night will be on us soon. How beautiful the stars are and the moon. They do cheer the heart, don't they? Said Sam, looking up. Elvish they are, somehow. And the moon's growing. We haven't seen him for a night or two in this cloudy weather. He's beginning to give quite a light. Yes, said Frodo. But he won't be full for some days. I don't think we'll try the marshes by the light of half a moon. Yes, some have complimented, says Seastar, the subtle mundane utility of elvish gear. Yes, and, and yeah, Joseph says, this is the tiniest Sam-sized bit of Middle-earth good fortune we will ever see. Yes, I, I love this. And Becca says, I love that Sam is still fanboying over Galadriel. Fanboying over Galadriel, this is, this is so beautiful, right? Sam loves this rope. He loves it this rope. Look at the way that he's stroking it. And, and you know, uh, I don't like leaving it. And that's a fact. He stroked the rope's end and shook it gently. It goes hard parting with anything I brought out of the elf country. Made by Galadriel herself too, maybe. Galadriel, he murmured, nodding his head mournfully. I don't think that the Lady of Lothlorien spends a lot of time weaving rope. I don't necessarily think that that is her primary concern or occupation. I don't think that, you know, she likes to, to grow some mallorn trees and preserve the antiquity of Lothlorien, the vision of, of Lorien as was in the West, and then, you know, spends an evening just kicking back, watching some Netflix with Caliborn, just, you know, weaving some rope. Doesn't necessarily 
read to me of Galadriel, but Sam is so so overtaken by the magic of the elven rope. And of course, I didn't pull the slide in which he's talking about the virtue of the rope, talking about how, how marvelous light it is and talking about how it's, it's this wonderful, beautiful thing, you know, the, the, the way that it shines out in the darkness even, you know, this, this silver light from the gray rope of the elves. He's so completely charmed by it because, of course, this is a magic that Sam can recognize. This isn't just a magic that a hobbit would appreciate, though it is certainly that, but Sam has particular insight into, into uh, ropes and knots. Um, it's in the family, as you might say. Why, my granddad and my uncle Andy after him, him that was the gaffer's eldest brother, he had a rope walk over by Tyfield many a year. He had a, this is where rope is fashioned, right? They made rope over in Tyfield in the East Farthing for many a year. I know about ropes, it's in my blood. That's why I can appreciate the greatness and the grandeur of this rope. I know about ropes. And now it comes. And Frodo, of course, being, I think, even oddly rational at this point. And I wonder to what degree Frodo's rationality here is evidence of his, and when I say rationality, I suppose I'm saying a, a skepticism, a kind of very modern skepticism that Frodo is applying here. Oh, Sam, let's be, let's just take a moment here, okay? Obviously your rope isn't magical because, oh no, wait, actually many, many things are magical and we've seen a lot of them and I have a magic sword and there's magic all about us. Um, oh, maybe your rope is magical. I don't know. No, Frodo instead has this very kind of modern skepticism here. And I wonder to what degree this is proof that he too is falling under the shadow. Is he just more distant from Lothlorien now? Is he now more distant from the enchantment of the elves? Look at what we do here at, at the end. Have it your own way, Master Frodo. I, I, then I'm afraid it must have been the knot, said Frodo. Sam rejects that outright. Have it your own way, Master Frodo, but I think the rope came off itself when I called. He coiled it up and stowed it lovingly in his pack. It certainly came, said Frodo, and that's the chief thing. But now we've got to think of our next move. Night will be on us soon. And then Frodo has this beat. And I like to think, as I'm reading this, of, of Frodo kind of half... Okay, Sam, okay. But not in frustration, in in realization, realizing that he has been skeptical for no reason, that actually magical rope 100% consistent with what we know of the elves, and I can't believe that Bilbo hasn't told Frodo stories of elven rope or, or you know, other, other magical, wonderful things that they've, they've created here. Um, so Frodo turns away, and then he has a moment of wonder, and it's the first moment of wonder that we've had for the longest time from Frodo, how beautiful the stars are and the moon. He looks up, and this is not just about, well, we've got to get going. Look at the time. We, we've got to get out of here. We've got to get away from this cliff face. This is all terribly, terribly bad. You know, I need to feel secure. We just need to keep pushing on to our inevitable doom on the the the, the flank of Mount Doom here, appropriately enough. Our, our ultimate fate on the flank of Mount Doom. We've just got to keep pushing on. No, he takes a moment. He has a moment of restoration. This is what stories do for us. This is one of the things that, that Professor Tolkien intended the Lord of the Rings to do for us. It gives us the gift of restoration. Once more, our jaded eyes are renewed. They are opened again. So Frodo comes down and he, he laughs. I mean, he's still Frodo. Who tied the rope? A good thing it held as long as it did. To think I trusted all my weight to your knot. And Sam says, hey, actually, no, I know about knots. And Frodo says, well, then it must have frayed. And Sam says, no. And he says, look, okay, but look at the stars and look at the moon, how beautiful they are. Frodo has <laughs> the most, you know, as Joseph was saying, this is, this is you know, a, a little bite-sized Samwise Gamgee-sized piece of magic here. But it is, in a sense, the most 
Hobbit kind of restoration that we're going to see throughout the entire book, throughout any of Tolkien's work, I think. This, for me, is a moment of, of genuine magic, at least to... to to my reading here. Yeah, as Jared says, I love that Frodo finds beauty in the midst of all of this. And this is not something that we've seen from Frodo a lot lately. You know, Frodo has been falling under the shadow, as we said, and now has just been starkly under the shadow, starkly in the Wraith world, thanks to the, uh, the scream of the Nazgul overhead. But now, thanks to a very simple piece of magic and Sam's absolute insistence on that magic, Frodo is renewed. How beautiful the stars are and the moon. And Sam draws the connection. This is one of the reasons that I think that this is intentional, that I don't just think that this is, this is hobbitry. In, some of you may not have, have heard that word. It was a, a common kind of, it was something that, that Professor Tolkien was very self-aware of, but it was also a kind of common criticism that was levied against his work as he was kind of working through the early drafts of The Lord of the Rings, that there was just a lot of hobbitry, just a lot of endless scenes of hobbits being hobbits and having these charming and whimsical and pretty insubstantial conversations, right? And he cut the hobbitry back to the, to the bone. There's almost, compared to the original drafts, there is almost no hobbitry in this book. And yet these moments really shine out to me. And Sam draws the connection. Sam seems to, to give us the, the underscore that proves that this was intentional. They do cheer the heart, don't they? Said Sam, looking up. Elvish they are somehow. And then we get, and the moon's growing. We haven't seen him for a night or two in the cloudy weather. He's beginning to give quite a light. Yes, we're ready to move on as well, of course, as, uh, as uh, leaning into this idea that the moon will be their company uh, as they move forward. Yeah. Yes, as Jackie says, this feels like a Frodo in the Shire moment for sure. Yes. Good, good. Good. <laughs> and Brian drawing a connection that I hadn't thought of. I have some rope up here, but I do not think you would accept my help since I'm only waiting around to kill you. That's Inigo Montoya at the top of the, uh, the, the Cliffs of Insanity waiting to throw the rope down to Wesley. I could give you my honor as a Spaniard. It's no good. I've known too many Spaniards. Yes, good. Um, Ty asks, I think I've missed something, but why do they gender the moon? We have talked about this... Um, we have talked about this very fleetingly in the past, but the hobbits do gender the moon in a masculine fashion. And I was... I think it was only this reading through The Lord of the Rings that this caught my eye. I don't think that I'd ever really noticed this before, but yes, it is very unusual. I think that uh, there are only a handful of real-world cultures and traditions which gender the, mu the moon in a masculine fashion. Traditionally, the moon is a very feminine influence, and that holds up pretty much all over the world. There are some very specific traditions in which the moon is masculine, but generally speaking, the moon is feminine. It is very interesting in the context of uh, Tolkien's Legendarium, and you know, We'll, we'll circle back around to this when we get to the Silmarillion, I'm sure. Um, but it is very interesting that we, we gender the, the moon, uh, the hobbits specifically gender the moon in a masculine fashion. Good. Okay, let's, um, yeah, as Jenna calls out, I feel like most people would make, the moon, would make the moon feminine. Yes, yes. And Jackie's asking, is the moon typically masculine? No, in the real world, um, gosh, I did look this up once. There are a handful. Um, there are Japanese cultures, I believe, that, that, uh, that or, or Japanese traditions, at least uh, narrative traditions and, and mythic traditions that gender the moon in a masculine fashion. But yeah, broadly, particularly from that kind of, of Western European uh, cultural font, uh, that mythic font, that, that folkloric font, the, the moon is almost always feminine. Yes, good. Okay, let's, um, let's, oh, interesting, yes. 
<laughs> Jenna says, there is also the concept of the man in the moon. And I'm just going to preface this by saying that I have no time to go down this particular rabbit hole, even though I very, very much want to. Jenna says, well, there's also the concept of the man in the moon, which led to the wonderful Tumblr theory that the moon is a gorgeous trans lady. I'm very into this idea. We'll maybe talk about after uh, talk about that after the show. Okay, let's uh, keep pushing onward away from this hobbitry, away from this moment of hope. Let's not consider this hobbitry then. Let's consider this a moment of mundane magic that nonetheless restores vision and clarity and hope to Frodo and to Sam. But now it's time for Gollum. Now we're going to hide from Gollum, in fact, and await his coming. Down the face of a precipice, sheer and almost smooth it seemed in the pale moonlight, a small black shape was moving with its thin limbs splayed out. Maybe its soft clinging hands and toes were finding crevices and holds that no hobbit could ever have seen or used, but it looked as if it was just creeping down on sticky pads like some large, prowling thing of insect kind. And it was coming down head first, as if it was smelling its way. Now and again it lifted its head slowly, turning it right back on its long, skinny neck, and the hobbits caught a glimpse of two small, pale, gleaming lights, its eyes that blinked at the moon for a moment, and then were quickly lidded again. Do you think he can see us? said Sam. I don't know, said Frodo quietly, but I think not. It's hard even for friendly eyes to see these elven cloaks. I cannot see you in the shadow even at a few paces, and I've heard he doesn't like sun or moon. Then why is he coming down just here? Said, asked Sam. Quietly, Sam, said Frodo. He can smell us, perhaps, and he can hear as keen as elves, I believe. I think he has heard something now, our voices, probably. We did a lot of shouting away back there, and we were talking far too loudly until a minute ago. Well, I'm sick of him, said Sam. He came once too often for me, and I'm going to have a word with him if I can. I don't suppose we can give him the slip now anyway. Drawing his grey hood well over his face, Sam crept stealthily toward the cliff. More sniffing, more snuffling, more awfulness coming down the cliff. Yes, this is very, very disconcerting. And the thing that disturbs me the most here... And it was coming down head first, as if it was smelling its way. It's not just that Gollum is climbing down the sheer cliff face, which would be uncanny enough, particularly since we just went to, to great lengths to establish that this was a particularly difficult climb, right? The, the, the stakes here in the Emin Mole are, are, are very high indeed. We've already established that narratively, so it would be disconcerting enough if Gollum were simply climbing down. What is this thing? What is he doing? but he's coming down head first. He's coming down upside down, crawling down this vertical cliff face. It's very, very disquieting. And also, of course, somewhat imitative of the Black Riders. You know, you remember when the Black Rider gets down from his horse and is crawling forward with claw-like hands, snuffling the ground, trying to find, the, the, trying to find uh, Frodo and the others? This is very consistent with that moment. This is another indication that there is something here that we should be terribly, terribly afraid of. Yes. Sam, creeping stealthily, observes Jackie with, uh, with a crying laughter emoji. Yes, yes, it's pretty great. Drawing the grey hood well over his face, Sam crept stealthily towards the cliff. Though we must remember... Hobbits are famously good at stealth. Hobbits are, are able to make almost no sound as they move. So a silent Sam wearing a, on a, on a half-mooned night wearing an elven cloak, probably pretty close to invisible, actually. Like, I don't know what the functional difference would be between Sam just sneaking wearing his elven cloak with the hood drawn up on this dark night and wearing the ring. There's a very strong argument, in fact, that wearing the ring would be more powerful, yeah. Nikki says, do you think Gollum uses his sense of smell so frequently, though not out of necessity, as the Nazgul because of their connection with the ring? Yes, yes. Um, 
we're going to be able to delve into this more explicitly in next week's reading, actually. In next week's reading, we're going to get the big scene between, you know, the two sides of, of Gollum. Um, but even here, I think we get a powerful sense of the connection between Gollum and all the many servants of Sauron slash ring bearers slash creatures that have fallen under the influence of the ring. We can look at Gollum in a number of different ways. And, and first, I would urge you, as we're reading the book, to set aside the Andy Serkis performance that we get in, in the Peter Jackson movies. Not because it isn't good. Clearly, it's a standout performance. And clearly, it's one of the most memorable things in those movies. But it is a choice. It is... It, it rests upon some necessary assumptions and some explicit implication, uh, some some explicit statements about Gollum's character, which are not necessarily comprehensively supported by the text. We're going to talk about all of this, uh, all of this a little more next week as we move into that famous discussion. But as we're thinking about Gollum, one of the ways in which we can think about Gollum best is thinking of him as the ultimate ring bearer. Thinking about him as the the kind of the the most extreme form of what will happen to Bilbo or to Frodo or to anyone of of kind of 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 hobbity inclination who wields the ring, right? Gollum is closer to the Nazgul than arguably any other creature on Earth. So it's no coincidence that we're evoking some of his physicality here in the same way, and certainly some of his some of his movement, some of his, his action here, right? Some of the the verbs that we associate with Gollum are not in entirely dissimilar to the verbs that we associated at least with the Black Riders back in the Fellowship of the Ring. Less so with the Nazgul going forward, of course, because the Nazgul have had their power up now, you know, or, or are, to refine that thought again, uh, continually being powered up as we move through the story. As the shadow both darkens and extends across Middle-earth, so the Nazgul become more and more powerful. So we'll, we'll draw connections between Gollum and the Black Riders, uh, definitely, yes. Okay, we have a few more slides to get through tonight. How many slides do we have to get through tonight? One, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, we've got, a, we've got a, a task ahead of us here for the last half hour of our session, but we begin with the capture of Gollum itself, uh, himself. The black, crawling shape was now three quarters of the way down, and perhaps fifty feet or less above the cliff's foot. Crouching stone still in the shadow of a large boulder, the hobbits watched him. He seemed to have come to a difficult passage, or to be troubled about something. They could hear him snuffling, and now and again there was a sharp hiss of breath that sounded like a curse. He lifted his head, and they thought they heard him spit. Then he moved on again. Now they could hear his voice creaking and whistling. Ah, cautious, my precious. More haste, less speed. We mustn't risk our neck, must we, precious? No, precious. Gollum. He lifted his head again, blinked at the moon, and quickly shut his eyes. We hate it, he hissed. Nasty, nasty, shivery light it is. It spies on us, precious. It hurts our eyes. He was getting lower now, and the hisses became sharper and clearer. Where is it? Where is it? My precious, my precious. It's ours, it is, and we want it. The thieves, the thieves, the filthy little thieves. Where are they with my precious? Curse them. We hate them. It doesn't sound, like, it doesn't sound as if he knew we were here, does it? Whispered Sam. And what's his precious? Does he mean the... Shh! Breathed Frodo. He's getting near now. Near enough to hear a whisper. Indeed, Gollum was suddenly pausing again, and his large head on its scrawny neck was lolling from side to side as if he was listening. His pale eyes were half-unlidded. Sam restrained himself, though his fingers were twitching. His eyes, filled with anger and disgust, were fixed on the wretched creature as he now began to move again, still whispering and hissing to himself. 
At last he was no more than a dozen feet from the ground, right above their heads. From that point there was a sheer drop, for the, for the cliff was slightly undercut, and even Gollum could not find a hold of any kind. He seemed to be trying to twist round so as to go legs first, when suddenly with a shrill, whistling shriek he fell. As he did so, he curled his legs and arms up around him like a spider whose descending thread is snapped. So Gollum falls and is immediately captured. Um... <laughs> Jenna says, man, I wish I could show you all my Gollum from the movies impression. It's one of the only voices I can imitate and I have so much fun freaking people out with it. And Nikki says, Andy Serkis' voice is all I can hear now when I reread the book. Yes, yes. And, and Jared is asking, have you heard the Tolkien reading of Riddles in the Dark? The voice he did for, Go uh, for Gollum was incredible. You guys can definitely head on over to YouTube after the session is finished and search for that. There is a recording of the professor reading the entirety of chapter five. It's the uh, second edition chapter five. It's, it's very, very good. And the voice that he gives to Gollum is, as Jared says, completely fantastic. I highly recommend it. Good. Good. Okay. So the descent of Gollum. And of course, here we get our introduction within the frame of the Lord of the Rings, at least to, uh-huh. Well, okay. Here we get our introduction, period, to the speech pattern of Gollum. We must remember that the speech pattern that Gollum is given back in the pages of The Hobbit is actually kind of retconned based on the speech pattern that he is given here in The Lord of the Rings. That is to say that when the professor went back to revise chapter five of The Hobbit, Riddles in the Dark, he went back in light of the decisions that he had already made about The Lord of the Rings. So that version of Gollum is very different from the original version of Gollum, but even that version of Gollum is pretty different from this version of Gollum. This, this speech pattern is completely dissimilar to anyone else that we get in The Lord of the Rings, and it is so precise, so beautifully complex that we absolutely must pay attention to it. Of course, one of the things that you will notice is that Gollum uses the word precious a lot, but he uses the word precious in two very important ways, and one of the greatest triumphs, I think, of Andy Serkis' performance in the Two Towers movie in particular is his ability to make it clear which of these preciouses he is using. Is he using the lowercase p precious or the uppercase p precious? The uppercase p precious refers always to the ring. The lowercase p precious refers to himself, refers to his well, fractured identity, I suppose, the, the, the loose grasp that he has on his identity. Look at he's coming, as he's coming down the cliff here. Ah, cautious, my precious, more haste, less speed. This is him talking to himself. We mustn't risk our neck. Must be precious. No precious, Gollum. We hate it. And then he moves into his discussion of, of the moon. Then he was getting lower now and the hisses became sharp and clear. Where is it? Where is it? My precious, my precious, capital P's this time. Now he's not talking to himself or about himself. He's not referring to himself in the third person by this cute nickname. Instead, he's referring to the ring itself. And that raises, demands a really interesting question. To what degree is Gollum self-identifying with the ring. To what degree is Gollum thinking of himself as an extension of the ring? The ring is the precious, but he too himself is precious. He uses this word kind of, kind of metonymically, I think. He uses this word in part to refer to the ring, of course, but also to refer in a weird kind of fragmented third person to the bearer of the ring or the rightful bearer of the ring, the, the, the winner of the birthday present, I suppose, himself. And I want to pay close attention as we move forward to the degree to which Gollum 
self-identifies with the ring, effectively. The degree to which the ring is an integral part of Gollum's sense of his own nature and personality. Yes. Um, good. Jared says, of all the words Gollum could have chosen for, of all the words Tolkien could have chosen for Gollum to use for the ring and other things, precious is just flat out genius. It has that beautiful sibilance to it. It's absolutely perfect for Gollum's speech pattern. I would love to know which came first. I would love to know if the notion of, 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 of Gollum referring to the ring as precious gave rise to his speech pattern or if the inverse is true and if the professor already had a sense of this awful kind of hissing sibilant creature that of course uses precious because it's the creepiest possible word that he could say yeah good okay so that is our introduction to to Gollum as he's about to get grabbed but this is the real confrontation and this is going to lead us into what is probably going to be our biggest discussion of the evening well, what's to be done with it, said Sam. Tie it up so as it can't come sneaking after us no more, I say. But that would kill us, kill us, whimpered Gollum. Cruel little hobbitses, tie us up in the cold, hard lands and leave us, Gollum, Gollum. Sobs welled up in his gobbling throat. No, said Frodo. If we kill him, we must kill him outright, but we can't do that. Not as things are. Poor wretch, he has done us no harm. Oh, hasn't he, said Sam, rubbing his shoulder. Anyway, he meant to, and he means to, I'll warrant, throttle us in his sleep. That's his plan. I dare say, said Frodo. But what he means to do is another matter. He paused for a while and thought. Gollum lay still, but stopped whimpering. Sam stood glowering over him. It seemed to Frodo that he heard, quite plainly but far off, voices out of the past. What a pity Bilbo did not stab the vile creature when he had the chance. Pity? It was pity that stayed his hand, pity and mercy, not to strike without need. I do not feel any pity for Gollum. He deserves death. Deserves death, I dare say he does. Many that live deserve death, and some die that deserve life. Can you give that to them? Then be not too eager to deal out death in the name of justice, fearing for your own safety. Even the wise cannot see all ends. Very well, he answered aloud, lowering his sword. But still I am afraid, and yet, as you see, I will not touch the creature, for now that I see him, I do pity him. Sam stared at his master, who seemed to be speaking to someone who was not there. Gollum lifted his head. Yes, wretched are we, precious, he whined. Misery, misery, hobbits won't kill us, nice hobbits. No, we won't, said Frodo, but we won't let you go, either. You're full of wickedness and mischief, Gollum. You will have to come with us, that's all, while we keep an eye on you. But you must help us if you can. One good turn deserves another. So first of all, let's observe our eucatastrophic turn here. Yes, something terrible has happened. We departed from the company hoping that Frodo and Sam would escape the, the clutches of Gollum, hoping that, they would, hoping that he would not be able to follow their trail out through the Emin Mall. They have been hunted by him. They have been haunted by him. And now finally he is upon them. But in that confrontation, the guide is revealed. This is the turn of eucatastrophe. This is the intercession of grace here. Something good has come out of tragedy. Frodo and Sam, they believe, go the wrong way. They try and carve their path through the Ammon Mool. Frodo is convinced that he's going to end up in front of the shadow, but something is going to open a path for him, and who knows what it is. But if we can just stay ahead of Gollum, then at least we have hope. And of course, we can't stay ahead of Gollum. And Gollum himself is that thing that will open the path to the shadow itself, open that path to the passes of Mordor. This is a perfect example, I think, of eucatastrophe resting, as it always does, on that 
that necessary action, on that, that indefatigable action. We still have to move, we still have to create the opportunity, create the crack so that the light can get in, right? We have to somehow just, just continue pummeling against that, that brick wall in the hope that we can create enough of a crack that the light can get in, and that is what has happened here. But something far more important, obviously, is happening in this scene. We are calling back to the second chapter of The Fellowship of the Ring and the conversation between Frodo and Gandalf about pity. And we get something that is completely unprecedented in The Lord of the Rings, something that is completely unique in The Lord of the Rings. We have, of course, memories and we have recollections and we have reiterations. You know, we just came out of our discussion of um, do not meddle in the affairs of wizards, right? We, we just kind of circled back around to that in the last discussion here on There and Back Again. But this is something new. This kind of forceful uh, recapitulation of actual attributed dialogue, not now attributed as though it is being remembered, but as though it is a part of Frodo's inner monologue, this is completely unprecedented, as I say, completely unique in the pages of The Lord of the Rings. And it is incredibly important. Um, yes, good. <laughs> oh, Genesis Golem definitely lives in a hole with the ends of worms, uh, dark and dank. Yes, yes, I, I'm inclined to agree. It's not a good place to be. Yeah. Yeah, and Jenna points out too, this is all the more poignant because Frodo thinks Gandalf is dead. Absolutely right. And this is, we must be clear, um, hmm, recollection may be too weak a word for it, but this is happening to Frodo. This isn't Gandalf's presence. You know, this isn't Gandalf now back from the dead, kind of reaching out across the miles to speak with Frodo. We know that because Gandalf's account tells us that the ring has now passed beyond his sight, that he now doesn't know where Frodo is or what is going on with Frodo. He can't say anything to it. The last time he interacted with Frodo was when Frodo was on Amon Han, remember, and he was looking out and, and the, 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 the great conflict between the eye and the voice and the voice is there and we don't know who the voice belongs to, but he does call Frodo a fool. So that seems to be pretty indicative of something forceful here something pretty familiar in in that particular speech pattern. Yes, so that's Gandalf reaching out to Frodo and helping him. Take off the ring, you fool. But Gandalf has already told us now that he doesn't know where Frodo is. He he can't help Frodo. And by the time that we leave Gandalf, of course, these events have already transpired. This has already happened. In fact, I believe this is February the 30th. I believe that this is February the 30th, which is the day that Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli are reunited with Gandalf in the first place. So that's happening contemporaneously many, many miles to the West. This instead is Frodo remembering. And he's not remembering perfectly. Let's take a quick look here. We're going to talk a little, I think... Yeah, I think I, I'll actually switch up the order here. You know what? Let's let's do this slide first. I, I wanted to go back to look at this moment because we're going to talk about pity and we're going to talk about what it was that Bilbo did and why it was so special and why it was so important. So let's take a very quick look here at Riddles in the Dark, chapter five of The Hobbit. This is the actual moment of pity, which has so earned uh, so earned Gandalf's praise here from Bilbo. Bilbo almost stopped breathing and went stiff himself. He was desperate. He must get away out of this horrible darkness while he had any strength left. He must fight. He must stab the foul thing, put its eyes out, kill it. It meant to kill him. No, not a fair fight. He was invisible now. Gollum had no sword. Gollum had not actually threatened to kill him or tried to yet. And he was miserable, alone, lost. A sudden understanding. A pity mixed with horror welled up in Bilbo's heart. A glimpse of endless, unmarked days without light or hope of betterment. Hard stone, cold fish sneaking and whispering. All these thoughts passed in a flash of a second. He trembled. And then quite suddenly in another flash, as if lifted by a new strength and resolve, he leapt. 
No great leap for a man, but a leap in the dark. Straight over Gollum's head he jumped, seven feet forward and three in the air. Indeed, had he known it, he only just missed cracking his skull in the low arch of the passage. So this is the moment where Bilbo extends pity. Bilbo manages to uh, to delve deep within himself and find that fundamental goodness, manages to find that fundamental connection and forgive me because i know that we've talked about this before not least of all of course when we were talking about this chapter and then again in the second chapter of the fellowship of the ring we've talked about this before but pity is a very unfashionable virtue in the modern world we are generally suspicious or even outright resentful of pity the worst thing is to be pitied but pity does not Pity is, of course, connected to condescension. Pity is connected to this this also equally unfashionable virtue of, of, in the modern sense, looking down upon someone. Condescension, in the traditional medieval sense, is a great virtue. It is a wonderful thing to be able to look down upon someone from a higher station and nonetheless connect with their fundamental humanity, find the kinship in that relationship. And pity works in a very similar way. Pity Pity is distinct from empathy, a very fashionable and, and you know, well, <laughs> nothing like as fashionable as, fashionable as it should be, of course. But pity and empathy are distinct because empathy indicates fellow feeling, right? Empathy says, oh, dude, no, I've been there. I know. I feel you. Like, you and me, we've shared the same experience. We are the same, and I recognize that kinship because we have been through the same thing. I, too, have locked my keys in my car. I, too, have stood on a Lego block in bare feet, you know, the greatest awfulness that can happen to a human being. I, too, have 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 undergone this terrible circumstance. You and I, we are the same. I recognize this thanks to empathy. Pity is not the same as empathy. Pity crosses a line of, 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 of empathetic resonance, right? To pity someone is to say, I myself have never been where you are, and yet I have fellow feeling for you. I have never locked my keys in my car. I have never stood on a Lego block in the middle of the night when I was just trying to go to the bathroom like a civilized person. I myself have never experienced what you have experienced, and yet... I recognize that it is awful, and I feel for you. I pour forth my my compassion for you. That is what pity is, as we see here from Bilbo, right? A sudden understanding, a pity mixed with horror welled up in Bilbo's heart, a glimpse of endless unmarked days without light or hope of betterment, hard stone, cold fish, sneaking and whispering. All these thoughts passed in a flash of a second. What is it that Bilbo sees when he looks at Gollum? How awful Gollum's life is. Bilbo has never experienced this, right? There is, of course, an irony, particularly in the context of the revisions to The Hobbit and the, the, the changes to Riddles in the Dark, and, of course, uh, an irony that is, is based upon our understanding of The Lord of the Rings and the true nature of the One Ring. Remember, when The Hobbit was originally written, Gollum's magic ring was just a magic ring. It wasn't anything special. It was just a cool magic ring of invisibility, and that was it. When Tolkien went back and revised it, he integrated it into the broader legendarium, and that gave this a poignant tragedy because by taking the ring, by using the ring, Bilbo is becoming like Gollum, but he doesn't know that. There is a dramatic irony there that is not in any way a a textual irony there. Instead, we see a true manifestation of pity. Bilbo does not know what it is like to suffer as Gollum suffers, and yet he feels for him, and yet he extends compassion, and he will also offer mercy. 
Mercy is just not taking the necessary action here, or, or not taking the, the extreme action, not taking the expedient action here, putting the welfare of another another person above, you know, the pragmatic response, I think. That, that's, yeah. Exactly, as, as Jenna calls out here, look down and show some mercy if you can, look down, look down upon your fellow man. Good, good. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, yeah, exactly, right? As Seastar says, like, Gandalf wishing this all hadn't happened in Frodo's time. Yes, exactly like that. Gandalf has never had the luxury of not fighting Sauron, right? Gandalf comes into Middle-earth, uh, the Istari come into Middle-earth explicitly to fight Sauron. So Gandalf says, you know, as Frodo says, you know, I wish this, this had never happened in my time. And Gandalf says, yeah, so do I. So do all who live in such times. There's not a corner of this world that isn't going to be touched by this. And my heart bleeds for you. This is not... This is not empathy. This is not, I know I have been there too. This is pity. I have never been where you are, and yet I am generous enough of spirit that I can feel for you. That is the virtue of pity, as unfashionable as it is, and I wish that that were not the case. I wish that we could kind of rehabilitate. I wish that we could reclaim pity. It's one of the great medieval virtues that would be, uh, that would be extremely valuable in the world today. Yes. Good. Good. Okay. So that's the recap of chapter five of The Hobbit. Let's continue our recap by looking back at the actual conversation here back in The Fellowship of the Ring, chapter two. But this is terrible, cried Frodo. Far worse than the worst I imagined from your hints and warnings. Oh, Gandalf, best of friends, what am I to do? For now I am, re I am really afraid. What am I to do? What a pity that Bilbo did not stab that vile creature when he had the chance. Pity? It was pity that stayed his hand. Pity and mercy not to strike without need. And he has been well rewarded, Frodo. Be sure that he took so little hurt from the evil and escaped in the end because he began his ownership of the ring so with pity. I am sorry, said Frodo, but I am frightened and I do not feel any pity for Gollum. You have not seen him, Gandalf broke in. No, and I don't want to, said Frodo. I can't understand you. Do you mean to say that you and the elves have just let him live on after all these horrible deeds? Now at any rate he is as bad as an orc and just an enemy. He deserves death. Deserves it. I dare say he does. Many that live deserve death and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? Then do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment, for even the very wise cannot see all ends. I have not much hope that Gollum can be cured before he dies, but there is a chance of it, and he is bound up with the fate of the ring. My heart tells me that he has some part to play yet, for good or ill before the end, and when that comes the pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many, yours not least. In any case, we did not kill him. He is very old and very wretched. The wood elves have him in prison but they treat him with such kindness as they can find in their wise hearts. They have him in prison, you know, for a while, for, for a little bit, just, just for a little while. And then, you know, keeping people in prison is so exhausting, you guys, and it's so easy to get distracted. You just glance at your phone, you're looking at your Instagram, you look up, Gollum's gone. It happens to the best of us, happens to the best of elves. So you'll note that there are a few changes here. There are a few textual changes here that are extremely significant. We, we modify slightly the dialogue as it's given to us in the original scene, of course, but there is one important addition. Let me see. Um, we should call out that the... Um, I'm sorry, but I am frightened and I do not feel any pity for Gollum. You have not seen him, Gandalf broke in. Okay, so let's look back at the... Um, 
at the exchange that we get here. What a pity Bilbo did not stab the vile creature uh, when he had a chance. Pity, it was pity that stayed his hand. Pity and mercy not to strike without need. Okay, so, so far, so accurate. This is actually a, a true, if incomplete, transcription of what we got back in chapter two of The Fellowship of the Ring. I do not feel any pity for Gollum. He deserves death. Deserves death, I dare say he does. Many that live deserve death. Some die that deserve life. Can you blah, 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 blah. Be not too eager to deal out death in the name of justice, fearing for your own safety. That is not what Gandalf said. That is not an accurate representation of the Grey Wizard's words back in Chapter 2 of The Fellowship of the Ring. This is something new. This does speak to this idea of fear when Frodo comes out of his little moment of reverie here, but still I am afraid. And yet, as you see, I will not touch the creature, for now that I see him, I do pity him. Now, after all this time, Gandalf, I see that you were right. I see that... Having, having met Gollum, having seen this wretched, lo wretched, loathsome creature, I do understand pity. I have not been where he is, and yet I have that fellow feeling. Nikki is asking, so as Sam and Bilbo weren't really ring bearers yet, does the difference in their reactions to Gollum have anything to do with their status, do you think? Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, Sam's relationship with Gollum is very different, fundamentally different from Bilbo's relationship, right? You're right to distinguish, Nikki. Uh, you're right to distinguish Frodo's response to Gollum. Frodo acknowledges not just pity, but empathy, right? Yes, I haven't been where Frodo is, but there is more connecting us than anyone else realized when they first encountered him. Bilbo didn't know, and there is nothing connecting Sam and Gollum in that way at this time. So Frodo's response is different and is distinct. What separated Bilbo and, uh, Bilbo and Sam's responses to Gollum, though, I think, is awareness. Bilbo didn't know about Gollum, but Sam has grown up hearing these stories. Sam knows all about the, the first version of Gollum, right? He, he knows all about the, the original draft of The Hobbit, where, where Gollum is just uh, a weird little guy who lives underground and wants to play a riddle game and absolutely would never cheat at the riddle game and wants to give Bilbo his prize, as uh, give Bilbo his magic ring of invisibility as the prize for winning the riddle game, right? The, the super harmless first version of Gollum, which is the story that Bilbo tells the dwarves after they escape from, uh, from uh, the Misty Mountains. Sam's grown up on that story, and now he's grown up on the real story. And he knows that Gollum is the one that led the Nazgul to the Shire. He's the one who, who, who gave up the secret of, of Baggins and Shire to the Dark Lord. That's part of the story that, that Gandalf is telling Frodo when Sam is listening in, remember? So we know that, that Sam knows this information, and presumably they've talked about it at least once on the road, particularly after Gollum shows up again and tracks them through Moria, you know, down through the Dimrald Dale, down around Lothlorien, down the... the the, the length of the Anduin all the way to Parth Gallon, and now that they have separated, now that they have lost their, their, their company, now that they have lost their companionship with, with the other members of the Fellowship, now that they've gone on by themselves, Gollum is still here, this slimy, wretched, awful, creepy thing. And of course, Sam isn't just fighting for himself. Sam here is, in a sense, fulfilling the role of servant. But yes, I, I do think that there's a, a really interesting distinction there. Um, and Jenna says, I think pity comes inherently from a place of inequality. Like, I think the core tenets of pity can be adapted and applied to be fashionable nowadays. Like, there's definitely good stuff in there, but it's also not perfect and can't be directly applied to today's society. Jenna, I think that's an absolutely... Um that is an absolutely uh, modern response to notions of pity, right? The... <sighs> pity presupposes 
an unequal society, right? It, 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 pity, like condescension, uh, presupposes that we live in the, uh, uh, a preordained social hierarchy, right? Pity is unfashionable in part because pity to modern eyes, I think, um, is, is to a certain extent anti-egalitarian, right? It, it, it implies that actually you and I are not the same. You and I are not, you know, at, at a very fundamental level, the same. I am better than you or greater than you or different from you. And I don't necessarily think that that is the case with pity. I think that pity has become associated with that kind of social hierarchy in exactly the same way as condescension has, but I don't think that that is a necessary component of pity. Pity doesn't necessarily say I am better than you and thus, you know, here I am extending my, my graciousness and my empathy toward you. That is not necessarily the case with pity. Pity just says, I have not been where you are. It's, it's literally two people who have had the same life experiences. One locks their keys in the car, the other doesn't. There is still a space here for pity. But yes, I think you put your finger exactly on why it is that pity is so unpopular, why it is such an unfashionable virtue, and why it is basically advocated by, you know, medievalists like the professor. Yes, yes. Um, let me see. As I catch up with a very, very chatty Crowdcast chat here. Um... Let me scroll all the way down and, and pick this up. Uh, Lily says, can't pity also come from a place of realizing you could be in the same situation where the circumstances reversed or is that the same thing? Um, yeah, I, I mean, yes, right. To realize, you know, to, to have the there but for the grace of God argument, right? To say that, oh, wow, if not for this very particular circumstance, I could be where you are, is to recognize I am not where you are, right? Uh, that, that we have not shared the same thing. I might have shared the same thing, but I didn't. So it's it's a different way of recognizing that fundamental dissimilarity there. Um, yes, I, I would say that that's the distinction there between kind of uh, hmm, a, a, a pity that is anchored in a possibility space rather than a pity that is anchored in like an observable uh, differential between experiences. That That's how I would interpret that. But again, that, that's my personal interpretation. And I have never been much of a medieval, you know, uh, theologian or, or medieval uh, philosopher. Yes, good. Good. Um, Seastar says, on the other hand, there was something to recognizing when you haven't experienced something someone else has, e.g. some form of marginalization, yet seeking to help them. Wow. Okay. It is 1028 and there is no way that we can get into a conversation about representation and marginalization and disenfranchisement and pity in a genuinely like progressive and inclusive and modern sense, because if nothing else, I would have to spend 15 minutes more carefully framing pity as a, is a, a modern virtue that, that is not in any way that, that in no way acknowledges a fundamental difference of experience or, or at least a fundamental difference of 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 essence i suppose so uh, yeah uh, suffice it to say we can't get into that right now but yeah i really think there's something to that sea star i think that that a, a good kind of pity is a way of acknowledging not just how awful your situation is but how undeservedly good my situation is because there's nothing stopping me from locking my keys in the car or standing on a Lego brick or being, you know, systematically disenfranchised by the patriarchy, that kind of thing. But th there is, I think, to, to the... Uh, mm. <laughs> this was not a conversation I quite expected to have, so excuse me while I think on my feet here. Um, 
there is an element to an informed, progressive, modern, just sense of pity of, yes, absolutely acknowledging one's own good fortune and privilege. Yes. And also, I think then we get into, into discussions of privilege politics. Then we get into discussions of, um, of to what degree the possessor of privilege is actually morally obligated to to uh, share that platform, to, to share that space. And obviously that's something, if you've been listening to previous episodes when I've been talking about opening up the discourse around Professor Tolkien and, and, and around uh, the discussion of Harry Potter too and the Dear Mr. Potter podcast, that is obviously something that I'm very passionate about and something that I, I believe to be fundamentally uh, true and, and important. Yes, good. Yeah, I, I do very much just want to kind of distinguish this idea that pity has anything to do with pity does not say I am better than you. Condescension absolutely does say I am better than you, right? Which is which is why condescension is difficult, but uh, for for modern egalitarian audiences. But pity has nothing inherently. We we've associated it with that kind of power differential, with that kind of dynamic. But it is not necessarily the case that to pity someone implies that you are better than that person or that you are greater than that person. This is. One of the reasons that pity is unpopular. Okay, we've got to keep pushing on here, you guys. This is an absolutely fascinating conversation, and I obviously would have this conversation for hours. But yes, we'll have lots more opportunity to talk about pity, too, as we move through the rest of uh, the rest of book four. So this is our point of conflict. Frodo here enters into this flashback sequence so that explicitly we know why he is taking the action that he is taking. This is why we get this, this absolutely unique intrusion of attributed dialogue from earlier in the story. We've never had anything like this in the Lord of the Rings before. We will never have anything like this in the Lord of the Rings again. This is a one-time deal to emphasize why it is that Frodo is making the choice that he is. Very well, he answered aloud, lowering his sword, but still I am afraid. And yet, as you see, I will not touch the creature, for now that I see him, I do pity him. Sam stared at his master, who seemed to be speaking to, uh, speaking to someone who was not there. Gollum lifted his head. And of course, Gollum here on the inside track. Gollum here is, is leveraging this opportunity for all that he can. Yes, wretched we are, precious, he whined. Misery, misery, hobbits won't kill us, nice hobbits. Just, yeah, look how pitiful I am. Please pity me, please. Yes. Okay. Let's, uh, let's move on here. <laughs> that's our discussion. That's our, that's our big moment. Let me skip through the slides that we've already discussed then. The Hobbit chapter five and the Fellowship of the Ring chapter two and move on to an unexpected guide. This is our moment of eucatastrophe. This is when Frodo realizes that, that, or I guess has already realized, but this is when we discuss the possibility of Gollum leading Frodo and Sam ever onward. Frodo looked straight into Gollum's eyes, which flinched and twisted away. You know that, or you guess well enough, Smeagol, he said quietly and sternly. We're going to Mordor, of course, and you know the way there, I believe. Ah, said Gollum, covering his ears with his hands as if such frankness and the open speaking of the names hurt him. We guessed, yes, we guessed, he whispered, that we didn't want them to go, did we? No, precious, not the nice hobbits. Ashes, ashes, and dust, and thirst there is, and pits, 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 and orcs, thousands of orcses. Nice hobbits mustn't go to those places. So you've been there, Frodo insisted, and you're being drawn back there, aren't you? Yes, yes, no, shrieked Gollum. Once, by accident it was, wasn't it, precious? Yes, by accident, but we won't go back, no, no. Then suddenly his voice and language changed, and he sobbed in his throat and spoke, but not to then. Leave me alone, Gollum. You hurt me. Oh, my poor hands, Gollum. I, we, I don't want to come back. I can't find it. I am tired. I, we can't find it. Gollum, Gollum, no, nowhere. They're not awake. Dwarves, men, and elves, terrible elves with bright eyes. I can't find it. Ach. 
He got up and clenched his long hand into a bony, fleshless knot, shaking it toward the east. We won't, he cried. Not for you. Then he collapsed again. Gollum, Gollum, he whimpered with his face to the ground. Don't look at us. Go away, go to sleep. He'll not go away or go to sleep at your command. Oh, sorry. Frodo, not Sam. He will not go away or go to sleep at your command, Smeagol, said Frodo. But if you really wish to be free of him again, then you must help me. And that, I fear, means finding us a path toward him. But you need not go all the way, not beyond the gates of his land. Gollum sat up again and looked at him under his eyelids. He's over there, he cackled. Always there. Orcs will take you all the way. Easy to find orcs east of the river. Don't ask, Smeagol. Poor, poor Smeagol. He went away long ago. They took his precious... And he's lost now. Perhaps we'll find him again, if you come with us, said Frodo. No, no, never. He lost his precious, said Gollum. Oh, interesting. Jared is asking, if Gollum had been stronger, would Frodo have pity toward him? Uh, presumably not, which Gollum seems to realize, of course, when he is, is playing into this, as, as Frodo declares that he has pity for Gollum. And, and uh, Gollum says, yeah, no, I'm wretched. I'm, I know you wouldn't hurt me. I'm so pitiful. Look at me. Yes, absolutely. Yes, uh, Brian calling out here. Gollum reads a lot like an addict in withdrawal here. So pathetic and pitiable. Jackie calls out Gollum and PTSD. Rayla Lynn making the same point there. And Seastar just saying... He went away long ago, sad emoji. And Seastar observing something very, very important. His first use of I. Yes, exactly that. Frodo leans into this, of course, by confronting him right at the beginning of this slide. He, he, we're talking about... Um, Frodo and Sam's ultimate destination. Gollum is kind of playing tricksy with them here. Frodo looked straight into Gollum's eyes, which flinched and twisted away. You know that, or you guess well enough, Smeagol, he said quietly and sternly. We are going to Mordor, of course, and you know the way there, I believe. Using his given name here is a moment of, of enormous power. And, and Gollum, is, uh, Gollum, as distinct from Smeagol, I suppose, is twisting beneath Frodo's gaze here, covering his ears with his hands as if such frankness and the open speaking of the names hurt him. Yes, look at how his, his, how his speech pattern is utterly fragmented, how it collapses into this kind of rhythmic punctuative. It's, it's just sounds at this point. Ashes, ashes, and dust, and thirst there is, and pits, 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 and orcs, thousands of orcses. He's collapsing in on himself. So you've been there, Frodo insisted, and you're being drawn back there, aren't you? Yes, yes, no, once by accident it was, wasn't it precious? Yes, by accident, but we won't go back, no, no. And then we get the change. Then we get this moment of awareness, this, this moment of, of, God, awful, yes, PTSD-like lucidity here. Leave me alone, Gollum, you hurt me. Oh, my poor hands, Gollum, I, we, I don't want to come back. I can't find it. I am tired. I, we can't find it. Gollum, Gollum, no, nowhere. They're always awake. Dwarves and men and elves, terrible elves with bright eyes. I can't find it. What is it that Gollum is referring to here? I mean, the it, obviously, is the ring. I think we can be pretty confident about that. But, but the broader context here, what is it that Gollum is saying? Well, Gollum has been tortured and he has been sent forth into the world to find the ring, to find the precious, and to bring it back to Sauron, 
Leave me alone, Gollum. You hurt me. Oh, my poor hands. And we'll notice here too, uh, you know, I called out the, the distinction between precious lowercase p and precious uppercase p. Very important. The distinction between we and I is absolutely crucial. The distinction between Smeagol as a name and Gollum as a name is very, very important. And the distinction between Gollum as a name and Gollum italicized as the onomatopoeic sound that Gollum makes. This is why he has this name, this, this boom in the back of his throat, right? This is important. We, we need to pay very close attention to that. Leave me alone, Gollum. You hurt me. Oh, my poor hands, Gollum. I, we, I don't want to come back. This is a statement of individual identity that we have not yet had from Gollum within the pages of The Lord of the Rings. This is a new perspective on who this character fundamentally is. And he tries to persuade Frodo here at the end that he doesn't want to return to Mordor, that he doesn't want to go back. Um, and he collapses, shaking his fist at the east. We won't, not for you. Don't look, at, uh, don't look at us. Go away, go to sleep. Tying back to this idea, they're always awake, right? Gollum has gone out into the world and he can't find the ring because everyone is awake and not just awake in the sense that they are not sleeping, but awake in the sense that they are roused. They are woken to him now. Dwarves, men and elves, terrible elves with bright eyes. And we're reminded of, you know, Frodo's experience of Gildor, seeing the luminous Gildor. That's what he really looks like, uncloaked. He is this, this pillar of flame of a man, you know, or of, of an elf, excuse me. And that Frodo, because, uh, that, that Gollum, excuse me, because of his exposure to the ring and his exposure to the race world, presumably sees all elves in a similar fashion. This is, this is a torment for him and they're all awake and he can't find it and he can't move and he's being hunted and pursued, of course, by Gandalf and Aragorn, if, if no one else. Um, and then, yes, don't look at us, go away, go to sleep. He just wants the eye to close drawing another point of comparison there between Frodo and, and Smeagol. He will not go away or go to sleep at your command, Smeagol, said Frodo. But if you really wish to be free of him again, then you must help me. Now he's making his pitch. Take us there. Um, but you need not go all the way, not beyond the gates of his land. Frodo's still extending kindness here. And Gollum sat up and looked at him under his eyelids. He's over there, he cackled, always there. Like, you know where he is, my dude. Like, he's right over the, the giant tower with the eye and the the the, the sense of him and, and the, the awfulness and the shadow of him. You know where he is. What are you saying? I, why do you need me to lead you there? He's right there. And orcs, orcs could definitely take you to Barador, by the way. If that's where you want to go, orcs are your guys. Just wander out on to the battle plane, just wander out over Dagger, uh, over uh, Daggerlad, and and have the orcs take you there. I'm sure they'll be willing to oblige you. You don't need me. Don't ask Smeagol. Poor, poor Smeagol. He went away long ago. They took his precious, and he's lost now. He went away long ago. A recognition here that what Gollum was has been taken. He he went away long ago. They took his precious, and he's lost now. Gollum making the connection there with uh, the loss of the ring. They took his precious. Bilbo took his precious. Baggins, we hates it forever, took his precious. Yeah, good. Um, yes, 500 years. Um, are we, uh, yes. Um, Rayla Lynn says, I wonder how long it has been since he heard the name Smeagol. Um, whew, that's a really interesting question. Uh, uh, Angela was ask, uh, answering that. 500 years since he got his birthday present. Um 500 years or thereabouts, he was still a part of his community after getting the ring. Remember, he was committing horrible crimes in his village until he was was cast out um, by his grandmother, by all accounts. Uh, so yes, um, probably a very, very, very long time. Yes, good. Good, all right. 
Let's wrap up here with our last slide as um, because I have you know 15 minutes left and this is a pretty long slide. So Frodo commands Smeagol. He binds him with the elven rope first, which doesn't work because the elven rope just burns Gollum and, uh, and agonizes him. So instead, we have to come up with an alternate route for this uh, alliance, this, this new smaller fellowship to work. It hurts us, it hurts us, hissed Gollum. It freezes, it bites. Elves twisted it, curse them. Nasty, cruel hobbits. That's why we tries to escape, of course it is precious. We guessed they were cruel hobbits. They visit elves, fierce elves with bright eyes. Take it off us, it hurts us. No, I will not take it off you, said Frodo. Not unless, he paused a moment in thought, not unless there is any promise you can make that I can trust. We will swear to do what it wants. Yes, yes, said Gollum, still twisting and grabbing at his ankle. It hurts us. Swear, said Frodo. Smeagol, said Gollum suddenly and clearly, opening his eyes wide and staring at Frodo with a strange light. Smeagol will swear on the precious. Frodo drew himself up, and again Sam was startled by his words and his stern voice. On the precious? How dare you, he said. Think. One, ruled, one ring to rule them all and in the darkness bind them. Would you commit your promise to that, Smeagol? It will hold you, but it is more treacherous than you are. It may twist your words. Beware, Gollum cowered. On the precious, on the precious, he repeated. And what would you swear, asked Frodo. To be very, very good, said Gollum. Then crawling to Frodo's feet, he groveled before him, whispering hoarsely. A shudder ran over him as if the words shook his very bones with fear. Smeagol will swear never, never to let him have it. Never. Smeagol will save it. But he must swear on the precious. No, not on it, said Frodo, looking down at him with stern pity. Only wish is to see it and touch it if you can, though you know it will drive you mad. Not on it. Swear by it, if you will, for you know where it is. Yes, you know, Smeagol. It is before you. For a moment it appeared to Sam that his master had grown and Gollum had shrunk. A tall, stern shadow, a mighty lord who hid his brightness in grey cloud, and at his feet a little whining dog. Yet the two were in the same way, were in some way akin and not alien. They could reach one another's minds. Gollum raised himself and began pawing at Frodo, fawning at his knees. Down! Down, said Frodo. Now speak your promise. We promises, yes, I promise, said Gollum. I will serve the master of the precious. Good master, good Smeagol, Gollum, Gollum. Suddenly he began to weep and bite at his ankle again. This is the taking of the promise. The only promise that Smeagol can swear that will bind him. We promises, yes, I promise again. Note that important transition there. We promises, yes, I promise, said Gollum. I will serve the master of the precious. Good master. Good Smeagol. Gollum. Gollum. And even here, of course, as Sam observes, as, as Sam sees that his master has grown and Gollum has shrunk, a tall, stern shadow, a mighty lord who hid his brightness in grey cloud and at his feet a little whining dog, yet the two were in some way akin and not alien. As Sam observes... There is a connection here between Frodo and Gollum. They are one and the same, or if not one and the same, they are at least on the same continuity of experience, the same continuum of experience, excuse me. They are former ring bearer and current ring bearer, the one withered by long years of exposure to the corruptive influence of the ring, the other beginning that long diminution, that long dark journey. Yeah. 
Good, as Brian calls out, down, addressing him like a dog. Yes, exactly the dog that Sam saw. Angela pointing out, Sam sees so clearly. Yes, doesn't he? Doesn't he, though? Yes. Uh, And Jenna asks, does anyone else just cringe whenever Frodo calls the ring the precious? Yes, that moment. uh, Smeagol will swear on the precious. Frodo drew himself up. And again, Sam was startled by his words in his stern voice, on the precious, the capital P. How dare you, he said. Think, one ring to rule them all, and in the darkness bind them. Would you commit your promise to that, Smeagol? It will hold you, but it is more treacherous than you are. It may twist your words. Beware. This a moment of, again, pity or empathy here from Frodo, recognizing that, that swearing by the precious, swearing by the ring is not something that you do lightly, for it is corruptive. It is more treacherous than you are. It may twist your words. But this is the only thing that Gollum can swear on. On the precious, on the precious, he repeated, just insisting this is what he must do. He must give his oath on the precious. And what would you swear, asked Frodo, to be very, very good? Well, nice try, Gollum. That's the golem part there. To be good, I'll, I'll just be, I'll be good. I'll be good. Don't you worry about it. And we'll see next week, in next week's reading, exactly how Gollum, as opposed to Smeagol, tries to rationalize that part of this entire discourse. How he tries to, to rationalize that part of his exchange with Frodo to try to justify, you know, another path of action, let's say. To be very, very good, said Gollum. Then crawling to Frodo's feet, he groveled before him, whispering hoarsely. A shudder ran over him as if the words shook his very bones with fear. And notice the transition here. Smeagol will swear never, never to let him have it. Never. Smeagol will save it. But he must swear on the precious. Better, better, more sincere. We're using Smeagol now and not Gollum. Like we're, we're using, okay, we're, we're moving in the right direction, but that's still not it. No, not on it, said Frodo. I understand what you're doing. I see through you, Gollum. I know that you just want to see the ring and touch the ring, but you don't need to because you know where it is. You know who wields it. Yes, you know, Smeagol, it is before you. It's not, it's not, like not strictly, Frodo is before him. And again, we question at this point to what degree Gollum self-identifies with the ring. To what degree is the lowercase p precious and the uppercase p precious? To what degree are those two concepts to some, in some sense interchangeable, Right. To what degree is he the precious? To what degree now is Frodo the precious? You know where the ring is, Gollum. It is before you. Behold me, Frodo Baggins of the Shire, the precious. There seems to be a strong implication in that direction. And then we get the promise. We promises, yes, I promise I will serve the master of the precious. Good master, good Smeagol. Well, we'll see how that works out next week. Let's uh, wrap up here as, as I run frantically out of time. Next session, book four, chapter two, The Passage of the Marshes. This is going to be this coming Thursday, January the 11th, 2018 at 3 p.m. Eastern. This is one of my 3 p.m. weeks. So both uh, Dear Mr. Potter on Tuesday and they're back again on Thursday, taking place at 3 p.m. Eastern. Also, if you are at all interested in Star Wars, stay tuned for my thoughts on The Last Jedi in an upcoming story and Star Star Wars lecture. If you're new to story in Star Wars, that is not a live lecture in this format. That is something that I, I prepare and record and write and, and script a little more tightly because goodness knows I have a lot of things to say about The Last Jedi. You guys, that will be coming forth from Point North Media this week. We have just a couple of minutes. Okay. Let's take a couple questions here. Uh, a question from Ty. I tried to tweet you for this, but what might happen if an ant got a hold of the one ring? I saw this on, on Twitter, Ty, and and Gosh, spent some time thinking about it. Let me tell you, what would happen if an ant got a hold of the one ring? Um, 
I do not think it would be terribly different from Sam or from Galadriel, ultimately. Sam without the humility that comes from being Sam Gamgee, basically. Let me uh, cancel this slide so I can actually come back to you full screen here. Hello, everyone. It's been a pleasure to uh, discuss the Lord of the Rings with you this evening. Um, I think that we would see an absolute restoration of, of the wild forests of old, right? The one thing that I find very interesting about the thought of an ant wielding the One Ring is that line that Treebeard says to Merry and Pippin, like, like the most famous Treebeard line that we get. I am not on anyone's side because no one is entirely on my side. And that is genuinely fascinating. Um, would Treebeard set himself up as a lord of Middle-earth, a dark lord? No, I don't think so, because I don't think that Treebeard has any desire to dominate. That does not, or to, to, to rule, you know, men and elves and dwarves and hobbits. I don't think Treebeard cares about ruling those races. I do not think things would work out very well for those races. I do not think that they would uh, linger long in Middle-earth if Treebeard came into possession of the One Ring. Though at the same time, it is possible that Treebeard's... It is possible that Treebeard's lack of desire to rule, his lack of desire for power, would actually make him relatively immune to the influence of the One Ring. It is possible that Treebeard would put on the One Ring and turn invisible and think, huh, that's completely useless to me, I don't need this thing, and then maybe even give it up, because, as we'll see later in this story, certainly as we have a sense of already, thanks to, to Frodo, and, and what Gandalf was saying back in um, back in chapter 2, in the quote from chapter 2 of The Fellowship of the Ring that we, we referenced in tonight's session, um, the fact that Bilbo began his career in pity, his career as ring-bearer in pity, meant that he was more resilient to the ring. There is a connection between the ring's desire for... No, let me be a little more careful with that, I suppose. There is a connection between the ring bearer's desire for power and the power of the ring, if that makes sense. Um, and I'm not sure that Treebeard has a, has a desire for power. What do you guys think here in the, uh, here in the, in the chat? Yeah, Angela's asking, would an ant shrug it off like Tom Bombadil? I don't think quite like Tom Bombadil. I think that Tom Bombadil is a unique case here. But yes, I, I, it is possible there. Um, Exactly, right? As Seastar says, as someone said in the Lord of the Rings Fanatics Plaza, the ring wouldn't make an ant want, a che uh, want cheeseburgers unless they already had a desire for a good cheeseburger, right? It plays on the desires that you already had. That's what it did with Boromir. It's what it did with Gollum. It's what it did with Bilbo. It's what it did with Galadriel. It's what it's done with every single person who has fallen under the influence of the ring, either directly, as in they were a ring bearer, or indirectly, they were just close to someone who was a ring bearer and really, really wanted the ring. Saruman too, of course. We've seen the influence of the ring always uh, heighten and exaggerate those initial impulses. What is Treebeard's initial impulse? Uh, who can say, really? I, I'm not entirely sure that it is a desire for power. I could see the argument, right? If you came to me and said, oh boy, the entire world would turn into, into a primordial forest. It would be Fangorn Forest and the old forest all over again. There'd be no, you know, uh, no open land at all. The forest would just rule from, from horizon to horizon. Possibly. I'm not sure that I can completely refute that argument, but I do think it's also possible to make the argument that Treebeard just wouldn't be that interested and would actually end up being very resilient to the ring. Um, I don't know for sure, but it is fascinating. Yes. Um, 
Let me see. Uh, Fina is asking a pronunciation question. I want to ask this for ages, and I know we've left Aragorn behind for now. What does the accent on Anduril mean for the pronunciation? Does it have any impact at all on the stress of the word, maybe? Um, the, the little accent mark above a vowel in a Sindarin word means that that is a, a stressed vowel, effectively. It is Anduril. It is uh, the, the stress there falls on the second, the second of the three syllables. Anduril. And I'm not always great about observing that stress pattern. But yes, that, that is what that means. That little mark, that diacritical mark in Sindarin always means stress this. That's what that represents. Okay, um, let me see here. Let's maybe do one more before we wrap this up. Uh, Joseph has a huge question. I've never fully appreciated why Sam has such natural animosity toward Gollum. What is it about his character that drives this? I think I addressed this just a little bit earlier, but I think two key things. Um, Gollum for Sam in a way that he was not for Bilbo and is not for Frodo, is a storybook villain. Gollum is a monster that Bilbo overcame in his journey to the Lonely Mountain, and now he is worse than that because he is a monster that has emerged from storybooks. He is a monster that has sold out Baggins and the Shire to the Dark Lord of Barad-dûr. You know, he has an endangered... The reason that Master Frodo has to undertake this perilous quest, in part, from Sam's somewhat limited perspective, is because Gollum talked. He, he he gave away his secret. He is a loathsome creature. And also, I think that there's an argument that, that Sam recognizes the unnaturalness, the, the, the corruption of Gollum. He recognizes that Gollum is not a thing which ought to exist in the world. Gollum is not a part of the natural order. And Sam, being a gardener, being, you know, a, a simple hobbit, is very much about the natural order. There are right things in the world and there are wrong things in the world. And again, here we must distinguish elves, not supernatural. Elves, very, very natural within the vision of, of Tolkien's secondary creation here, which I think accounts for, for Sam's fascination with them. But yeah, and uh, partly the influence of Bilbo's stories growing up, I'm sure, uh, and partly his desire to serve Master Frodo. Um, Gollum, because Frodo is a ring bearer, is a direct threat to Frodo specifically. And I think that... It is entirely possible that Sam would be more open-hearted, more generous, more compassionate if Gollum was coming after him or if Gollum were going after someone else. But the fact that it is Frodo that is the, the target of, of Gollum's, um, Gollum's malevolent desire here, I think does actually carry a bit of weight with Sam. That's certainly how I would interpret it. And then, of course, as we move through the rest of this book and we begin to see greater and greater parallels between Frodo and, and Gollum, I think there's an element of that too, that Sam begins to see the connection between Frodo and Gollum in a way that makes him profoundly uncomfortable about his master's ultimate fate and future. That is certainly how I would read that. Um, let me see here. Uh, Jenna is asking, did Professor Tolkien ever clarify why he did the order of books three and four the way they were? I feel like there's a compelling argument for doing the Frodo-Sam-Gollum storyline first and the story of the others second. Um, huh. I I'd be interested in what you think thought that compelling argument was, Jenna. I don't think I've ever, um, I don't think that I've ever really thought about why it is structured like this, except that it seems to me that there is something very purposeful in the transition from high to low, if you like, um, in terms of the rhetoric, in terms of the oratory, in terms of the kind of the, the dramatic scale of the events. We go to 
we go to Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli and we do the, the gosh, the, the battle with the orcs and the Entmoot and the assault on Isengard and, and Edoras and Metheseld and the healing of King Theoden and then the battle of Helm's Deep and then the final confrontation of Gandalf and Saruman at Orthanc. And it's pretty huge. I mean, it's certainly larger than anything we've had in the frame of the Lord of the Rings to date. It, it's, you know, these are full on large scale military conflicts, large scale philosophical and magical conflicts. So we go very, very big there. And then we go very, very small. And I'm not sure that the professor ever laid out his 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 uh, decision to structure things in, in exactly this way. Um, there may well be something in the letters. There may well be something in, uh, in the History of Middle-Earth series, which I haven't read terribly closely in this regard. So uh, I'm not entirely sure why this split was made, but it does seem to me to be a very... A very natural and very purposeful split for for this particular book. I absolutely have to uh, have to write. Uh, I have to wrap this up here because I'm going to get kicked off of Crowdcast, guys. This has been an absolute pleasure. I am so glad that you all joined me tonight. As I said, next week we're going to look at the Passage of the Marshes, Book Two, Chapter. F- uh, sorry, Book Four, Chapter Two. That will be at 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, Thursday afternoon. That's Thursday, January the 11th. Lots more to come from Point North Media. Oh, and if you are so inclined. Tomorrow morning, Monday morning, as I do on every Monday morning, I will be hosting a short live session right here on Crowdcast called This Week on Point North, where I talk about what I'm going to do that week. And it's a kind of schedule update, kind of very casual. I'm not really, you know, delving too deep into critical analysis and that kind of stuff. Tomorrow morning, though, there will be a couple of announcements about some upcoming changes to how we do things at Point North and a new place to hang out and talk about stories, which I'm very excited about. So if you are around at noon Eastern or 11 a.m. Central Time tomorrow morning, that's Monday morning, then uh, come join me right here on Crowdcast and uh, have a cup of coffee and we'll talk about some plans for Point North in the upcoming week. That is going to do it. I absolutely have to end right now. Guys, have a great night. I hope to talk to you all tomorrow. I will certainly talk to you all again on Thursday. I'll see you all soon. Until then, take care. Good night all.